Hello, and welcome to the 15th annual award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. Who is it that makes a man's gray hairs forlorn? Who is it that demands that he himself should make them so? Is there no compassion for this venerable graybeard? None for the innocent child. And yet Abraham was God's chosen, and it was the Lord who put him to this test. All was now surely lost. The glorious memory of the human race, the promise in Abraham's seed. It was only a whim, a fleeting thought of the Lord's, which Abraham himself must now eradicate. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling, the Alistair Haney edition. I'm Patrick Remion, uh, and that'll be uh, more pertinent to the second half of our uh, our episode. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's that's what came to my mind when I when I when I watched The Devil Wears Prada was that quote for some reason. Uh, I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm I'm having a normal. Welcome one. to the Academy, Patrick. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I um, We'll talk about it a little bit later, but I also had a very existential reaction to The Devil Wears Prada this week. The third time through in both films, we've talked about it before. We're in the vortex. We're in the eye of the storm. There's a cow flying through the air. Bill Paxton's here. You know, it's a real twister situation, but the twister is Meryl Streep. We're in it. This week's episode two, I mean, um, Patrick, have we talked about whether you like NBA basketball before? Uh, I, I don't watch it frequently, but I like it. It's good. I, I put it as good. In the early 2000s, late 90s, there was a real balance difference between the quality of the Western Conference and the quality of the Eastern Conference. Basically, the Western Conference finals were kind of the NBA finals for right. a time period. And I think we might be facing that situation today in our Academy Academy bracket with oh, yeah. two of the biggest the biggest guns in the entire tournament going at it right here. This is, this probably is an episode that all of our listeners are on the freaking edge of our uh, edge of their seats. Oh yeah. To check to, out, you know, they're quote, not sleeping. I, quote, I can guarantee you that. Oh, totally. To quote my favorite uh, band of all time, power man, 5,000. And this is what it's like when worlds collide. And this is yeah. what it's like. This is what it's wow. like when worlds collide. <laughs> This is what people are coming to this show for. It's like we start with a Kierkegaard quote, move straight into a Power Man 5000 quote. I, it's culture coming coming at you from the Academy Academy. We'll just put it that way. Let's just get to it today. Our guest is an absolute killer. He's a Los Angeles king. He's an all-arounder. Yeah. He's a, he's a good friend of ours. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest this week, Nick Eliafin. Eliafin? He's a great friend. Eliafon. Eliafon. I wrote it down phonetically too, and it's still, oh, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) Nick's here. It's it's okay. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, Yes. (sighs) It is my pleasure in any pronunciation of my last name. It is a pleasure to be here. Worked so hard on giving him like a really cool, mysterious, um, bunch of tags at the front of it that I like got to his name and I was like oh shit because <laughs> <laughs> my f looks like a t that I wrote down and I think uh, I was like, tan <laughs> no that's not right <laughs> um if it makes you feel better at my high school graduation uh the I guess what is it the principal <laughs> is that who 
whoever announces the names uh, pronounced my my last name wrong. Out of all the students, mine was the only one that got pronounced incorrectly. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, but you're we're so happy to have you here. Uh, thank you for joining us for kind of a. Um, I mean, we were just talking about it, a pivotal episode. Oh yeah, of the show. A corner. Um, a you know, I mean, I don't know if you had existential thoughts while watching Devil Wars Prada like we did this week, Nick, yeah. but um, <laughs> we'll get into it in a moment or, um, you know. I was wondering, yeah. like, if, like, it's like, is this like a, ta- is, is Anne Hathaway's character, like Abraham in the Bible? Like, would she, like, it just, will she, will she kill her son in order to uh, join God's throne? Like, are you, uh-huh. I, I, I wouldn't say I had an existential, um, any existential thoughts, but um, this has been at, at least my 20th or 25th uh, viewing of Devil Wears Prada. And I'm always reminded of how much I truly do enjoy uh, that movie on many different levels. It's a good boy. And you, and you were saying before you came on, I mean, we are watching two films that couldn't be more different <laughs> this week. Literally, Polar opposites, <laughs> street spectrum. <laughs> I mean, it, it does go to show just how I think that her and I, we kind of got into this a little bit last week with our um, inevitably controversial Kramer versus Kramer Iron Lady episode, but kind of, I, I, I think it shows just how versatile she is. You know, oh, yeah. we talked a little bit about last week that, you know, she is technical. She does kind of bring the same mindset to each part but by taking that mindset into so many different directions and it's absolutely on display this week in two titan roles for her i'd say you know her early kind of quintessential role and then probably her late career her signature role yeah in devil wars prada i think pretty safe to say it's so funny like uh, I've always voted against Sophie's choice. I've always been like the the bad boy of the naysayer, the naysayer. But now, mm-hmm. like uh, I say nay to naysaying. Uh, it took three it took three views, but I, I get it now. Maybe it's like my brain's finally like at the right level. I don't know what it is, or maybe it's like you know, uh, you know, I was eating that ice cream, Nick. Like, have you guys like we talked about Stephen King a few podcasts back? Like, you know that one Stephen King movie? And this is what the movie I should have said that Meryl Streep should have starred in. Like, the one Stephen King short story where uh, it's about, like, people, when they start quitting smoking, they realize that, like, there are people that have these disgusting bat faces that are, like, secretly ruling the world. And you can only see them if you're, like, smoking a little bit of cigarettes. Like, if you're only smoking... How many stories did he write about quitting smoking speaking of authors putting themselves into things probably <laughs> like, a lot i think it, i think it literally is like whatever stephen king's going through it's like if he has a car crash he writes misery if he's quitting drugs he's writing whatever his po- movie about almost it's almost in his podcast is whatever like you know he probably has a book about quitting drugs like he has like he's always like uh bringing his life into it in weird ways but uh in the same way maybe like i needed to like eat a certain amount of ice cream to understand sophie's choice in the same way that those people had to like, you know, uh, eat, cause I was eating a, and I won't, do you want me to, should I not bring it up? Do you want me to bring it up? I just, I, I'll just say I had some good ice cream and it belongs, it was made by someone. It was very good. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I do make ice cream and Patrick did enjoy some of it. 
uh, are you are you comparing the the vice of smoking to the vice of eating my ice cream? <laughs> well, it's well, I'm just saying that like in the same way that you needed only a little bit of nicotine to realize to see the world for how it was in that one Stephen King short story. Maybe I needed a little bit of uh, of dairy. To yeah, see the world. <laughs> I imagine you having just little bites of my ice cream and then seeing devil faces appear in other people. <laughs> um, you put on Rowdy Roddy Piper's sunglasses from They Live and you saw um, Sophie's Choice in a completely different way. <laughs> That'd be so great. I put on the, 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 it's like, whoa, this, mo- this movie's pretty good actually. And my, and my neighbor is a skeleton man. <laughs> yeah, Rowdy Roddy Piper's uh, sunglasses reveal like the ills and of capitalism and disgusting um, corporatism of the 1980s, but also reveal kind of nuanced edges to Sophie's choices. Sophie's choice that <laughs> just weren't seen before, you know. And uh, that's the that, sequel. John Carpenter, you know, he's he's got a lot of depth. You didn't see that coming in his original script. It's kind of something you need to dig in on a little bit more. Oh yeah, much like uh, a good carpenter, uh, he uses all the wood. I don't know. You should write for you should write movie reviews because that's that's a, that sounds like a great great day. I would I would actually pay, I would pay money to read Patrick's movie reviews. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's just every John Carpenter movie right there. That's good paste was, you know copy and paste that bad. Was boy. it um was it Gene Shallot was kind of the wacky movie critic that used to be on like Good Morning America? Yes. Oh. Thinking. That should be your job, Patrick. You go on there. You do some puns. You yell. At- <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll make my mustache weirder. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll get bushy eyebrows. Please, anyone uh, who listens to the Academy Academy, let me get the Gene Shallot. Let me be the successor, the heir to Gene Shallot. Maybe I'm like secretly his kid or See, something. Yeah, I can picture now Al Roker saying, this has been Al Roker with the weather. Now let's send it over to Patrick with a review of Nomadland. Uh, <laughs> Nomadland? Uh, n- n- no, I'm a fan. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> Let's go back to the studio. John Oliver is dropping by. Yeah. He said, "Teach us how to make ziti." What? Oh my goodness! All right, we're already uh, not a surprise with the three of us that we're already in the weird zone just off the top. But um, we we better try and get the ship on track because I know we're dying to talk about Sophie's Choice and we're dying to talk about the Devil Wears Prada. So Nick, oh, yeah. and we've heard it from. Everybody else, we got to hear yours, though. What's your Streep story? First movie, first memories, any specific Meryl moments? We've had a couple guests who've been in the same room as her, even. What do you got? Um, That's crazy. I've never been in the same room with Meryl. I have been in the same room as some other celebs, but not, uh, not the lady herself. Uh, my first memory... I was talking to you guys, I think um, probably was Death Becomes Her, that early 90s film. Uh, I was born in 88, and that film was just like one of the movies that would make its cycle on like whatever, like TNT, USA. And so I think just the image of her against Goldie Hawn trying to kill each other uh, is, mm-hmm. seared, is seared into my <laughs> millennial 90, like 90s kid brain. Yeah, that is it's, such um... a USA movie. It's and it's got it, you know I mean it was kind of at the very like we've talked about a little bit before that 
came out the year before Jurassic Park, and it was mm. kind of the same effects team were building out um, CGI graphics pretty much for the first time, kind of within a year of Terminator 2 as well. And um, all those, I think, to all of us who were growing up in that time period, mm-hmm. whether it was the dinosaurs in the Jurassic Park or like T-1000 coming out of liquid metal or oh, Meryl Streep with her head on backwards, it's like that kind of like, I think that made us all really into the idea of watching movies because it was seemed so like how where is this cup like that's so wild and you just like the, the last period of true movie magic before everything was just computer generated and it was assumed it was computer generated and that was that for sure oh yeah not to totally derail but jurassic park probably de- i mean that movie just stands up i mean that oh yeah yeah, I mean, it holds up rather. You know what I mean? Like you watch mm-hmm. that movie now, and you're like, "This is amazing!" Like, was this movie released a year ago, two <laughs> years ago? It's actually quite incredible what Steven did and the whole team and the effects team. Because I'm a total sucker for that too, Don. Mm-hmm. I love, I mean, stuff that just looks real and and normal. And so the animatronics and the puppetry in that film, uh, yeah, just like fantastic. And kind of the combination of kind of the cutting edge stuff with the the classic kind of, um, you know, in-camera real world effects. Like you said, the Stan Winston puppetry, the, you know, just kind of use, utilizing everything, which I think like very few filmmakers, obviously Christopher Nolan sticks out as someone who still uses a lot of that kind of stuff at a great scale, but very few like you don't see like it would be awesome in the marvel movies if like the bradley cooper raccoon character in um rocket Gar- guardians of the galaxy what if that was a puppet like a gremlin or something like that <laughs> you know wouldn't that be cool like, uh, of- i do love this idea too don that it's not just like it's a, i mean literally you also have the actor holding the puppet in the oh shop. yeah like yeah. Like he, he's a serious guy so i think bradley cooper would be up for it he learned how to sing and play guitar for stars born so get him in the muppet the jim henson studio yeah. get oh, him man. in the mix to actually learn like in a john Mal- like in being john malkovich you know sean penn said someday i i imagine i'll be a puppeteer 10 5 10 years from now <laughs> so i think you know, could actually we could see could see the prophecy of john malkovich puppeteer going to many actors but it'll be bradley cooper instead who kind of starts the, the puppeteering trend bradley if you're listening first come on the show second <laughs> you could get into puppeteering we'd love to see your rocky rocky raccoon or whatever the hell i don't know i only saw it once <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know we want to see a puppet <laughs> baby yoda what about baby groot mm-hmm like oh, a pu- yeah, puppet. oh, whoa, whoa. Somebody call go. somebody call Disney Plus. Patrick just blew minds with some big yeah. Hollywood pitches right there. Exactly. Hollywood. Hollywood. But wow. I but I think like there is a quality and I, I wonder if like kids who are watching, I don't know, yeah, Baby Yoda or whatever the hell today. Yeah. Um are having that same kind of um like ingrained magical feeling that those images from Death Becomes Her or Jurassic Park park or terminator 2 or some of those like end of practical effects early cgi movies have yeah. had on us i you know i, I mean they're, know, yeah. they're, they're probably gonna miss out on all that right we should have a zoomer on the show and see what they um see what their opinion they probably think all this crap sucks i don't know Jeez. Yeah, it's like 
too many. It's, it's not 15 seconds. I want yeah, this to be a TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why isn't well, someone reviewing cereal in this? Yeah. Like, <laughs> no one, the movie isn't opening with, hey guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Terminator 2 opened with, hey guys. That would be the funny, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger just pops up, hey guys. And then he goes into the movie. <laughs> this is my movie, I guess. Uh, please like and subscribe. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Watch kids. Watch, watch, watch Death Becomes Her. Watch. Terminator 2. Like, get a little bit more. You're, you're it's really, fun. You're, you're really pushing the Terminator 2. Are they a sponsor of this podcast? No, but um, Patrick and I have had a lot of off camera, James Cameron text <laughs> chain, text chain oh, lately. Yeah. <laughs> and, we've, been, um, we've been talking Terminator. We've been talking Titanic. He, yeah, he's he's been on our minds quite a bit lately. <laughs> and, you know, not to tease anything, not to sprinkle any seeds, but it could be a future topic on the Academy Academy. We'll see. Ooh. We don't know. That's yeah, actually but, really um, interesting. that's interesting because a, a YouTube video just popped up for me yesterday of uh, James uh, Cameron narrating how the Titanic actually sunk. <laughs> like it's a four minute clip of like a talking about CGI, CGI ship sinking and James just being like, yeah, uh-huh. Yep, that's right. And then it breaks off. Uh-huh. And then people, and people die. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, then, and it's like, it's kind of funny because I guess the irony is that in the movie, it's not how this, it's not how it's happening in the YouTube video. It's very different, but he's talking like he knows it so well. And I'm like, if, if this is how it happened, how come that's not how it's portrayed in the in the film, James? Is it? Yeah. Is it, yeah. Sorry. We get to, gotta get to the bottom of it. I am, um, boy, we're gonna get even further off topic. The reason the entire thing came up is I told Patrick I'd, I'd never actually seen Titanic. Wait. And. Wait, to this yeah. day, I mean, have you seen it since this conversation? No. I have not seen Titanic and I have not seen Avatar. And so we were... Um, yeah, because I, yeah. I haven't seen True Lies. Yeah, and, and I was... because I, I think they actually started because I watched True Lies on HBO a few weeks ago and I was texting everybody I knew how much I thought it ruled. <laughs> Dude, Titanic <laughs> was two firsts for me. And I know we're getting so off, uh, so off track, but real quick. My first PG-13 movie. Oh, nice. And, and the first movie I ever saw twice in theaters. Wow. Ah. That is the effect of uh, Kate Winslet and <laughs> Leo. Well, I mean, I, it came out, I think, was it 96? Was that Titanic, 97? Yeah, it was I was either a freshman or sophomore in high school. And, you know, we're going to get personal on this episode. Like I said, we got a little existential on Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> yeah. I did not have a date to see Titanic my oh. freshman or sophomore year of high school. At the time when Titanic came out, and I felt I needed to have, because that's what was going around in my high school. Was, it was good, like kind of the ultimate, because um, it was around Valentine's Day, oh. um, kind of the ultimate date movie and so i um hey it was kind of would you would you want to go see a movie about people drowning and dying together for i don't know i I don't know i mean it's three hours long yeah i'm gonna um i'll i'll promise when things open up and if they do a revival screening of (laughs) titanic somewhere in los angeles i'll take my wife as a date because i got a wife now high school people (laughs) but um (laughs) you have to prove something i got a wife no but i think that there was like a combination of yeah like this kind of like like me like becoming like crossing my arms being like 
the hell with this. I, I didn't even want to see it in the first place. Yeah. Because like, and then also like the contrarian side of me of like, the second everyone is a fan of something, I oh, immediately yeah. become skeptical. So yeah. I was like, I don't even need like, we all seen Fargo. That's a real movie. I believe I probably said something very much along those lines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Titanic. I'm without. watching a little movie called Time Cop. Yeah, have you seen Time Cop? JCVD, it's like kind of a more serious movie for him. But a little more still, nuanced. He still does the splits and like, you know, he's got a different haircut in this one. So it's like a big difference. Someone melts into a puddle like Terminator. Yeah, Ron Silver is a quite a villain in it. But uh, oh, man. A little, bit, a little bit of Time Cop talk right there. But oh, um, R.I.P. a real one, Ron Silver. Yeah, except he, uh, he became a... Um, 9-11 neoconservative he went straight he went okay. hardcore on the bush really, train really quickly, this is for our later this is for the second movie we're doing but that uh trait is shared by a cast member of the devil wears prada and oh, really? i think oh yeah and i'll, I'll bring it up Ooh, on the second what a tease now i'll bring it up to find out who who became a neocon <laughs> what i'll just say what i don't know if he was a neocon but what i'll just say one of the cast members of the devil wears prada narrated the documentary loose change oh, <laughs> not okay. even joking i'm not even i found this out just randomly googling while watching the devil wears prada was it um dolce or gabbana that's my guess <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was gucci <laughs> um, but okay, but yeah, I mean, uh, like Nick, have you uh, to try and get us back on track a little bit here? Um, I mean, yeah, okay, I, I, I mean I, you said you've seen Devil Wears Prada upwards to close closing in on probably thirty times. Um, are there any other Meryl Streep movies you tend to like a lot, or um, yeah, is she I, someone you, when she has a new movie, you're like, oh, I'm excited to see that one? Uh, so. To be honest, I, I definitely have not seen a lot of the Streep catalog. And that's on me, really shame on me, shame on Nick. But I'm always excited to see any project she's in because I'm like, is she gonna be nominated? Because <laughs> that's like, right? That's, the, that's like the running joke now is that she could have three lines in a movie and it's yeah. like, she's up for best supporting actress. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, and-, and, and Witness and, into the woods. Oh no, and also, oh, yeah, oh my God, perfect example. Um, I don't, she was, was she nominated for Little Women? I don't think she was, was she? She was not, uh, no. She had like 10 lines in that movie. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe I'm like lowballing her. Maybe she had more lines, but that, she obviously has created such a, you know, uh, and uh, what can I say? She's like the queen, you know, she's like the queen. So it's mm-hmm. like she's in a film for two seconds, you're immediately drawn to her. So no matter what you put her in, she's gonna be like, she's gonna flourish. She's gonna steal the screen. Um, I'm trying to think of other street films that I've watched a lot. I honestly, I really love Doubt. Doubt is an incredible mm-hmm. film. Um, definitely more driven to, I think, the drama. I don't know why, because I think she also does comedy really. She does everything well. But I remember being really affected by Doubt and just the sheer acting chops between her, Amy Adams, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, that like trifecta was just fantastic that oh, yeah. year was like some of the best acting it's um it's kind of a dream scenario i mean when we reviewed doubt we we did kind of say it's like wait to be even like if you were stuck in one entertainment time loop where you couldn't do anything else having meryl streep and philip seymour hoffman just dramatically <laughs> yell at each other 
forever wouldn't be a terrible place to be like <laughs> that would be that would be so yeah. entertaining all the way through and i they just um i just read too that apparently they when they were off camera they were kind of like talking a little bit of smack to each mm-hmm. other before they went on like well i'm gonna fucking take you down That's you know so right funny. now it, like because they because they knew they're having a good time they love the challenge of kind of like sparring with each other in those big in those big scenes and it's very much on display how much like for a movie that is bleak um how much fun they do seem to be having oh, yeah. in kind of their sparring in that one i wish it i wish it i boy i i mean i voted for it over kramer versus kramer in the first round and i still think about it as one of my favorite street performances but our guest that episode did have a very good argument for kramer versus kramer so yeah. you know tough tough call tough. it was a tough one that was like a, that was like another one where it's like another example of like two of the because like had those two movies been put up against other like i think most of the other movies on the list they probably could have beaten you know it's just like it's just a tough tough bracket it was a tough bracket the academy division i mean and as yeah. nick just said that she's nominated every single time out most of the time it's pretty damn good so I, it's like, I, yeah. yeah i just well obviously i looked up on imdb and she's been nominated for a record i believe it was 20 oscars and a record like 33 golden globes i believe yeah and she's gonna get nominated for another golden globe this year for she will we we were not big prom fans here mm. but it, she will be nominated for best actress in a musical comedy this year for the prom oh, i yeah. just they'll want it yeah those yeah. want her involved. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, hey, we're uh, we're prognosticators too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen Prom, but I've actually only heard really positive things about it. So mm. I will have to give that a watch because it's a it's a happy it's a happy movie, right? It's, it's like a it plot is, it that feel good. It's it's it, it is. It's it's also endless. It's oh, like two, no. two yeah. hours and ten minutes long and like twenty six songs. <laughs> so it's just oh my god. Like, yeah. It's like you want to just feel like beaten up by by a musical. <laughs> That's kind of the um. It it gets very hammered home to the point of like, wow, and okay, they're going again. <laughs> you yeah. know? Oh, oh now no. this person's singing. Okay, maybe and I will not watch that <laughs> or watch it in pieces. Like yeah. like make it make it episodic. But um, you know, she's she's always good. It probably would have it would have slotted in very, very nicely in our tournament to take on Mamma Mia in the first round in the um, oh, yeah. musical bracket. Mamma Mia would have wiped the floor with it. But um, Oh, totally. T- just ate, ate its lunch. Because uh, uh, before we jumped on the show, uh, Nick actually asked us folks if there was any movie that we felt kind of had changed our minds between screenings. And um, Mamma Mia is the one that sticks out for me in a big big way like obviously the first time we reviewed it uh patrick and i were mama mia skeptics <laughs> fairly safe to say and the second time through we were like this is delightful we enjoyed ourselves quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no that movie is just like if you let just like let let it all uh slide over you you know just let pepper let the pepper fall on your face and just you know get seasoned ex- by pepper yeah get, get seasoned, seasoned by- get seasoned my friends is the season to get seasoned i say yeah god bless pep and boy i mean we i know we've extended a lot of invites but i think patrick it's pretty safe to assume that the guy who plays pepper would be the ultimate greg get for this show (laughs) i'm gonna now that's my current job 
<laughs> it's now my job to find Pepper and get him on the sh- Let's see. I just need to find... Uh... It's kind of overtaken, I think, in my mind, getting a gummer. Yeah. Oh. Which it sounds kind of dirty, to see how, the way I just said that. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we're um, still, in, you know, to the fans that are on the edge of their seats, um, still no updates on getting an original Don Gummer sculpture. Um, <laughs> we... I think I think I can talk my parents into housing it in their front yard, but um, we are no closer than that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just put I could, it that yeah. way. I could I could maybe convince my mom and dad to put it in the back. Okay, this guy has a Twitter account, Philip oh, Michael. Oh, okay, it's Philip Michael. Oh, are my you gonna God. reach out live on the show? I could message him right. <laughs> okay, well let's just do it. Fuck it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Folks, you're hearing it first. I don't know if I've ever heard a podcast in which a Twitter reach out was a, occurred live <laughs> on the show. This is breaking ground. Um, Earwolf, uh, Ringer, any of the podcast networks. Um, Headgum. Headgum. Like, this is big stuff. If you're interested in picking up the Academy Academy, we're, we're wide open to negotiations, but we've got a bargaining ship now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good evening, uh, Sir, <laughs> wait, no, god damn it. Okay, I can't do it. I can't do it while I'm, I can't do it while I'm tired. I'm afraid now. All right, let's, so okay, got, let's chat. Let's yeah. chat yeah, about we'll these chat. movies. Let's <laughs> give, let's chat about these movies. We're safe. We'll save the live tweet, but it's, it's on the horizon. Everyone's, you know, let us know, folks, if you'd like to hear more live tweets, <laughs> top notch audio content. Oh, yeah, just me, yeah, me typing, yeah. <laughs> I can get. I can um, also uh, put the uh, my uh, mic near some uh, drying paint too later if we want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean this is this is really pushing boundaries here. Um, and oh, yeah. speaking of that, uh, let's just jump into it. Our first movie tonight. We're talking about. We've talked about it many times. We've got. We've really run the gamut on this film, and it's 1982's Sophie's Choice. Um, here are the statistics once again. Directed by Alan J. Pakula, also um, screenplay by Alan J. Pakula, based on the novel of the same name by William Styron. Uh, this movie was budgeted at $9 million, and it made a um, nice, in 1982, $30 million. Um, the film, let's uh, go to that Rotten Tomatoes score. Everybody loves this part. Um, 78%. On Rotten Tomatoes, I don't. They, the Wikipedia page does not provide a consensus. Uh, but uh, Roger Ebert gave the film four stars out of four, calling it a fine, absorbing, wonderfully acted, heartbreaking movie. It's about three people who are faced with a series of choices: some frivolous, some tragic. The film received five Academy Award nominations: Best Screenplay Adapted, Best Original Score, Best Costume Design, Best Cinematography, and of course. Best Actress, Meryl Streep, won one Academy Award, and you guessed it, Best Actress, Meryl Streep. Um, Patrick, Nick, uh, Nick, you said before you um, we hopped on that you had seen this movie before. You're actually our first guest who had seen this movie before uh, reviewing it for the show, uh, but you said you saw it quite a while ago. Yeah, so, I mean, it's kind of like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah for any Jewish kid to have to watch any Holocaust related <laughs> films. <laughs> um, uh, I, I had seen this movie before, but it had been a very long time. I believe I watched it in film class in high school. So I was probably mm. 
16 or 17 when I viewed it. And I am 32 now, the ripe old age of 32, which means I had not seen this film in 15 years. <laughs> it's, it's not the movie uh, you go um, you know, running, running back to immediately. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we, we discussed it previously, but um, Patrick and I probably outside of the makers of the film have seen this movie more than anyone else in this short of a period of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like in, yeah, to watch uh, Sophie's Choice concurrently, so concurrent uh, after each viewing is like, yeah, it's madness. That's mm-hmm. like, yeah. Call if someone's doing that at uh, doing that, like in, if any of your loved ones are doing that, you know, call them, see how they're doing. Maybe like ask them to, you know, maybe watch like an episode of Cheers or something. Just mix yeah. it up a bit. <laughs> I, wonder I wonder if your iPhone starts notifying you. Hey, Patrick, I've noticed you're watching Sophie's Choice for the sixth time. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? <laughs> you had uh, four hours of screen time this week, but unfortunately, two and a half of them were Sophie's Choice. <laughs> yeah, that's when you, uh, you go. Then- you, that's when you go to the glass case in your house that has uh, the the Rankin Bass VHS copy of The <laughs> Hobbit, and then you just you know break in case of too much Sophie's Choice. <laughs> yeah. You pull it out, you know, put that VHS of The Hobbit in, you know, then then you can just detoxify. Mm-hmm. Listen, li- listen to those Hobbit songs. Now, I'm, I'm curious, Nick, um, and you might not have great memories of it, but what did you think of it in your like 16 year old self when you saw this movie? Did you just was it? like just a boring film or did you would did it leave an impression yeah so gr- great question well what's interesting is upon second viewing i was i forgot how oddly structured the film was and how kind of oddly lopsided it was i totally forgot that it's t- essentially two movies wedged together um <laughs> and i kind of forgot the whole first half of the film the, the whole her and, and, and the romance with with uh, with Kevin Klein, um, and then and then the you know the Southern writer that that I forget the actor's name um, uh, that that comes in and lives with them and, and befriends them. So my memory was obviously the more uh, the the sad part, <laughs> the like the really the really depressing scenes of like Auschwitz and you know the portrayal of, of obviously a, a horrific event. So. I, I, I'd probably say the the most you know effective parts of the film that I think haunts anyone who watches this. We can talk about I mean, we can talk about spoilers, right? I mean, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. This is our third radio. Yeah, we're okay. Good. So, so everyone knows. Like, I think I think you you go into the film right, titled Sophie's Choice, and I think as a sixteen year old, you're kind of like, I don't I don't get it. Why is it titled yeah. Sophie's Choice? Where's and, the choice? Yeah, where's the choice? Obviously, as, as you said earlier, she is, and the other characters in the film are faced with many choices and many decisions, but what is this big ultimate choice that she's faced with? And then of course, you, you understand that with about what, five, 10 minutes remaining, it comes at the very end of the film. And it's this horrific, horrific choice that no parent should be faced with. And just the scene of you know her daughter, her young daughter getting ripped away from her and, and the silent, her silent screaming, but hearing the shrieks of her of her daughter filling her voice as she silently is like emoting, that is just one of those images that that gets seared in your brain, no matter if you're eight, 20 or 50, you're seeing that movie. Because again, it's just one of those visceral things, even though none of us right now are parents, we can imagine that that's gotta be one of the 
probably one of the worst pains to, to go through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, one thing we talked a little bit about in our previous episode was kind of, we went a little hard on, um, I would still deem a few of the outer visual choices of the film, yeah. but um, the way that Kula sets up and really, really, it's, you know, both, uh, it's, it's subtle and it's simple how he stages. Mm-hmm. The, the choice scene, but it's absolutely the correct choices, to, choices um, to, um, <laughs> to kind of ca- to, to kind of capture just kind of the feeling of the moment and just how harrowing that it that the entire thing is. I mean, and you know, I read too that Meryl Streep um, basically looked at the script once mm-hmm. for that scene wow. and. Um, wanted it to feel both as fresh as possible and also not to kind of like water down the emotion that she was going to feel by reading the scene over and over and over again you know because it is and uh, and obviously I think the other reason why it isn't shot from too many angles is he probably didn't want to have her do the scene too many times yeah I you're you're probably right um you know, you're getting what we assume to be an incredibly raw performance from her. What I mean by that is it probably was maybe only shot it a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably didn't do a lot of takes. And, and again, I know it's kind of like, I hate to call it the climax of the film, but in a way it, it is. Um, the only other film, or there's a bunch, but one of the films that comes to mind that really affected me in such a way that that scene did was and again not to not to derail but the yeah. opening sequence of saving private ryan Ooh, yeah. was and i believe i was probably eight or nine when i saw that which is far too young to be seen a, <laughs> a a movie about gruesome war but that opening that sequence of them you know uh, of tom hanks trudging through the beach um and, and and making his way through you know bombs and dismembered bodies was again so horrific but so you know graphic in such a memorable way like those are just some scenes from movies i'll just never ever forget oh totally and i will say too that like uh like number one like i think that's like something that uh a lot of boys from our generation like nick or men i guess we're men now but uh Wait, wait, wait. We're, we're, we're boys. We're boys, Pat. We're big boys. We're big, we're big boys. That's big boys. I think a lot of big boys of our generation kind of share that movie as like a, I feel like that, because I had a similar thing with that movie too, where I saw that movie, it's way too young of an age. And that big, that beginning scene is like one of the most, like, it just stays in your mind forever. And I totally, uh, 100% uh, would go on like, movie forums uh when i was like 10 or 11 i'd pretend to be like 20 and then i would just like make posts about how the oscars should give the academy award to like the whole squad for best actor like all of them like vin diesel <laughs> jeremy davies all of them at once should get an oscar uh that's definitely <laughs> something i did like once or twice i mean yeah it was it was a great movie but yeah, yeah uh, that's but, all i had to say <laughs> <laughs> i mean well, I mean, the SAG Awards do give out for best ensemble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that was nominated. Oh, the, the year that oh, totally. Out. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, um, um, yeah. Young Patrick. One, I need to go one back thing I found, um, one thing I found really remarkable this time when kind of watching Meryl Streep's performance is, and I think oddly enough, 
is rewarded in a second or third viewing of this movie is kind of having the pre-existing knowledge of the way the story goes and then watching her in the opening scenes, even when they go to Coney Island and kind of tracking how, because she's, I think like the best performances are the ones in which they're physically showing you one thing, but you know that in their head, they're in a different place. Yeah, 100%, 100%. And what she's doing in those opening scenes and kind of like feigning the good times, the stuff, you know, and all, but knowing that the weight of everything that is to come in the movie and all what has happened to her already is there in those scenes. And the fact that um, Stingo doesn't know this. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing this kind of in Stingo's memory, all of it too. So it's, there's like, so many interesting levels that are happening in those early scenes with her that you think is just kind of a weird, like, oh, they're going to Coney Island together. Oh, they're dressing up in fun costumes. Oh, they're yeah. picnicking together. But like, once you find out like her, what's, what's going on with her and what's going on with Nathan, it adds this like real, like sad darkness. Oh. Those scenes that are supposed to be fun. Yeah, like it's so funny. Like I think like my biggest critiques, I've never voted for this movie. And, uh, you know, and we'll see what happens. But, like, uh, I feel like this is um, one of my biggest critiques in the past of uh, Meryl Streep's performance in this film. Like, you know, I still recognize that it was incredible. Like, it's a great performance no matter what. Uh, but I always thought that it was, like, a little, like, technical and maybe a little, um, you know, like, uh, maybe not restrained, but it felt like it felt so like much like she was acting and she wasn't like actually being like a real person at times in that film and i think now it kind of hit me on the head like watching it the third time that that you know that is her character she has to like she's constantly acting it's constantly a performance for a character it's almost like the perfect role for meryl streep because she's like one of the greatest actors of our generation and she has to play someone who constantly has to like you know pretend you know for uh you know, to keep herself sane, she has to like put on this facade almost. Uh, and it's and, multiple because each story she tells, a new portion is revealed. Like she doesn't yeah. want to get that final thing. So I think it's what three or four different stories until it finally gets down to like, oh, my my dad was a Nazi collaborator and I had to make this choice. And she didn't want to, and her husband, not as heavily in the film, it's but it's in the book, it's very alluded to that her husband is one and the same with the father. Wow. And just kind of like, and obviously there's so much shame in that. Oh, totally. And, then, and that's then, another thing that there's guilt, there's shame, and then there's depression and sadness oh, yeah. over and makes, the ultimately what happens. And it makes uh, their relationship together with uh, Nathan, it makes so much more, because it's like this combination of like, I think there is a part of her that's like, she deserves all the shit that Nathan gives her. Like she 100%. deeply feels that in that, you know, in the, that poisonous part of her. But then there's also like this sense of like, like when they're doing a lot of goofy stuff together, I, th- I thought of like times in my life when like goofy stuff, like, cause like, you know, it's just like, we're all adults. You know, I said we were big boys earlier, but we're adults. And uh, like, we don't like, you know, if uh, I, I would never be in a scenario where like, I, I used to have a roommate and there was never going to be a time uh, in my life as an adult man where like I go home and my roommate's dressed up like a southern like debutante or whatever or is like we're gonna go like on a wacky picnic and like y- you get the sense that like they're trying to like uh, make up for like 
uh, not childhood necessarily lost, but like, you know, you know, uh, some level of innocence. Yeah. Because like, yeah. happiness is not really available to them. They're, yeah. They're trying, they're trying to escape their truths. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what's happening, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. He's, she's disassociating when she's at Coney Island yeah. in so many ways. I think, Don, you said it well. It's like you're, you're, you're being shown an image of someone on a tilt-a-whirl who's like smiling and, and laughing, but you can see behind that is, is, is a broken person, someone, <laughs> someone who is fighting um, to, to honestly live and survive. I mean, and uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't gotten, I guess I haven't really said it yet, but this is, you know, Meryl Streep is absolutely fantastic in Sophie's Choice for, for so many reasons. She is asked to play so many different roles in one role and be mm -hmm. so many different people. And yes, she very much is an actor actor. She is not a Paul Newman type. And I use him as an example because Paul Newman plays Paul Newman in any movie, right? Oh, 100%. Um, Meryl Streep, she, she's, she's an actor. I mean, she, <laughs> she is a trained actress she learns the dialect. She learns the accents. She is skilled at what she does. So in a way it does, it can come off as somewhat, yeah, a little bit maybe robotic because it's like someone performing their job very, very well. So it's very manicured, I think is the right word. Manicured is the better word. Um, but yeah, sorry. No, it, it, but you, it's interesting because you, you, you use the word job. And I think that, you know, she's so known for like, she takes off the wig. She takes off the makeup. She goes home to Gummer and her kids and lives yeah. a complete, like, we've talked a little bit about it before, this idea of, like, the De Niro's of the world or the, even the Dustin Hoffman's the world, these, like, tortured, like, don't know where they are, even, you know, in it. And because of the fact that she has lived such a, like, separated life between her job of doing these amazing performances and then just going home and being, like, a mom and a married person and just kind of like living that life it makes you think that there isn't like this i guess like it's weird how we ask of actors to like sacrifice and be yeah. like these broken like insane people and stuff like that and i think with meryl streep it gets this like chilly like oh she's just doing this because it's because she doesn't she's obviously not a broken person yeah. she's like she seems to among stars to have it together in quite an extraordinary way and thus it's almost like you take it for granted or you like i keep thinking of like not best acting most acting okay in this movie she does all these parts she does all these voices she loses weight she gains weight you know it's just all over you know it's all like the tricks and stuff like that but it is in service of doing something incredibly complicated and nuanced it isn't just like gaining getting fat or getting skinny or something like that. She's doing so much more. Yeah, yeah it's no. like it's it's like dim sun act, dim sum acting, where like you, know, you have all these like little <laughs> Wait, like dis sorry, what dim sun like I don't know, it's like a dim sun where like you have all these disparate the aspects. Patrick's trademark. Patrick's trademark is Dude, finding dim something. Sum finding something oh, I'll, take, I'll take the shumai. I'll take the pork bun. <laughs> yeah, you know shum shumai is like I've lost weight. Pork bun, I gained weight. Like all these different like I don't know like but like and then you have it all together. It's like one of the best damn meals you've ever had in your freaking life. Making me hungry, man. Yeah. Oh man, we <laughs> definitely all need to get some early Sunday morning dim sum when life starts up again. Oh, that'd uh, be cool. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, but going but yeah. So 
I guess well, we're, let's let's stick with Sophie's choice, right? We're not going to go to double. Yet. Um, <laughs> not yet, no. Then, but you know, she, uh, yeah, I'm trying to like. It's just very much it's an actory role, right? I mean, mm -hmm. she is asked to act, and like you're saying, she's not. It's not like. I also hang on. I, what I want to say really is obviously the shooting style of a film that's in the uh, early '80s versus um, a 21st century film that relies on a lot of editing. With Sophie's Choice, and, and again, films of that time, the camera, as, as we all know, hang, will hang on a scene and hang on an actor for a longer period of time. There's less quick cuts. And as a viewer, that just gives you a more opportunity to really tune in and, and immerse yourself in, in, in that character that you're watching. And uh, I, I think it just is more of a service and, and good on those actors of the time. They're really in it. Mm -hmm. um, so not, not to say that actors nowadays are not, but they have the luxury of, of all this editing around them to piece together the correct and the perfect performance. Whereas these, you may be hanging on a shot for a longer period of time and someone really has to be in it. But I mean, this, it's, it's an incredible, incredible performance. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it, I don't know what to say. It's really one for the, it's really one for the ages. You know, to go on that note too is Pakula, <laughs> particularly obviously there's the final shot the freeze frame of her face yeah. and the entire monologue that she does that is a close-up on her face like Pakula in particular has a ton of faith and is kind of in love with the idea of just letting her do it like he doesn't he doesn't feel the need to get any flashier than that because like it's like we, we've said it before that old the Paul Thomas Anderson line I don't need special effects I have Daniel Day-Lewis like it's the same thing in this movie for both Meryl Streep and, I mean, obviously Kevin Klein explodes oh, yeah. onto the screen in this performance yeah. and they, they're such great scene partners. But this time around, I have to give credit where credit is due. I liked Stingo more same. this time around than I ever have before. Same, weird, I yeah, I liked him. him. Yeah. So again, since this is just my second time, second time ever viewing this movie and, and remembering that even the character Stingo exists at all, um, it is so hard for, and, and it, what, what's the actor's name? Someone remind me. Peter McNichol. Peter I only know him from Ally McBeal, which is hilarious, <laughs> which he was fantastic. And by the way, super funny and, char and, and, and hilarious in that show. But it's so hard for him to be in a scene with these two powerhouse people that literally just grab your every attention so mm -hmm. much and again since it is from his perspective he's the narrator of the film we're seeing so much of the movie through his eyes already that you know unfortunately for him and his character it kind of does take a back seat to these more i don't know just to be quite frank just more interesting characters so not to say that it was a bad performance at all it's just you're not as I don't know. You're you're just not as like interested in it. It's just not oh, as no. yeah. And I think he um this time around in particular, it's like they have to be that dynamic to have this effect. Because the way the book is written, it's clear he's writing this book, Sophie's Choice. Hmm. I believe it's like 30 years after this. And this is like the defining like coming of age it's like it's a coming of age story for him where he's this you know kind of innocent rube from the south who wants to be a writer 
and he meets these two incredibly dynamic people that not only affect him in that moment, but he remembers them years later as an established writer and they have had this entire effect on him. And so it's kind of thankless for Peter McNichol. And I think he does the most with it because he has to display the innocent who's watching these two incredibly dynamic people and capturing, you know, God bless Peter McNichol, but he is not a movie star on no. the same level no, no, that Kevin not. Klein and no, no, Meryl Streep are. Yeah, it kind of reminds me, I don't know why, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of Tobey Maguire in The Great Gatsby. Am I making this up? Was he yeah. in Gatsby? Yeah, yeah, he was. You no, know, he does not. Yeah, and, it's just, and it is the same kind of character too. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a voyeur in a way, right? It's someone just mm-hmm. watching the action happen but not exactly being a huge participant of it. And so in, in the, yeah. great, you know, the Great Gatsby, you get, of course, Leo. And then the, the other guy, the other actor who I love, whose name I'm forgetting. Who Jason is Clark or Joel Edgerton? Yes, Joel Edgerton yeah. is Joel Edgerton. fantastic. Uh, if, if anyone, if you have not seen, this is to all the people listening, if you haven't seen Warrior, that is one of the, honest to God, one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, yeah he's the best i agree i um i wholeheartedly agree with nick um it's one of the great sports movies of recent really it's just well that's what's what's so beautiful yes it not only does it do a great job showing sports but it's just a a family movie i mean yeah if you're if you if you find brother stories and father son (laughs) stories particularly moving this has got you uh got it in spades it's also essentially two rockies in one movie (laughs) which (laughs) You know, it's like, and by by the time, I mean, the way it's set up, it's it goes exactly how you know it's going to go, but you're still on the edge of your seat, which I think is like a hallmark of a great, great movie or great story, or like even say that like we've heard that before from like improv coaches before. It's like you're giving the audience exactly what they want, and that's so pleasing if it's going the right way. Of course, but yeah, you know, yeah. But anyways, I, so going, but going back, I just, that character, for whatever reason, the character kind of reminded me a little bit of the, the, the and again, I forget the character from the book, so excuse me, but Tobey Maguire's character. Said, from- yeah, Nick Carraway, you know, the, um, yeah. the outsider who, it's, it remains kind of, because I think the reason, and I, I think actually I got it this time around a little bit more, um, Stingo is mystified because he's heard this story, this horrific story. But he starts off seeing these two people as these, like, like we said, these incredibly dynamic, thrilling, beautiful, young people full of energy and life. And the last time he sees them, they have committed suicide on a bed. And the look on Peter McNichol's face when he sees them is this, you see his innocence being sucked out of him. Well, you also, I also didn't realize that he's 22, or his, rather his character, you know, his character is mm. only 22 in the film. And I didn't. You know, I, I just didn't know that until the, it reveals that at the at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, uh, Sophie Merrill is 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 a woman in her uh, early thirties, and I assume Kevin is also that same. of that same age. I think he said he's just turned thirty, or he's about to turn thirty, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's 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 totally him uh, losing his naivete in so many ways. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he really, you know, and he, uh, that, that is his best shining moment in the film. A hundred percent are those last few minutes being uh, approaching the house with his luggage to come visit and then walking through all like the reporters and the neighbors walking up the stairs 
and yeah, the look of just distraught and horror and also just sadness. I mean, it's just, that, that is, yeah, that's good at, what can I say? He did a good yeah. job. Good job, sir. Yeah, I will say too that like that's like the one moment too where like I feel like, and I saw it a little more in this view than the other viewings. Like one of my criticisms of the film, I would say is that it, you see it. I wish like less of the film was seen through the lens of Peter McNiffstingo's horniness. Like it really <laughs> is just like like a lot of like Stingo's goals are just like I want to stup, I want to stup. And like even well, the um the scene with the scene with Leslie should it's oh, in just, the book, but it should have been cut from the movie entirely. Oh, it's useless in the movie. Yeah, dude, what is going on? Like I that's like a 10-minute segment of the film almost. Why is that there? This movie is already like running two and a half hours. It serves no purpose, serves no character, serves no story, no plot. Like, well, I think it's there to frame like Castingo later tries to like mac on Sophie, you know, and I, I well, think but that's a no, no, no. I'm sorry to cut you off. I think that's a little bit different because I, with Sophie, he he truly has fallen in love with her. That is true. And, and also, I would argue. I mean, he, he already admits in the film he's also fallen in love with Kevin Klein. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like he yeah. genuinely loves these people. He's looked up to them. He he's grown with them. He sees them as 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 who knows. As but they're the two kind of people that I think a young man, you know, eighteen to twenty two or whatever. You get the older, the cool older brother, yeah. the wild man, kind of like the confident guy that you want to, you know, you want to like emulate and be. And then you get the mysterious older woman that you are becomes your first great, like either crush or attraction, or in some cases, I guess, love. Yeah. Like a, a cooler older guy, like a, like a Matthew Lillard in a perfect score or, <laughs> or, or, or a Tom Noonan and eight-legged freaks. Wait, I Tom love Noonan. Yeah, Tom Noonan. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Tom Noonan and Manhunter. <laughs> I, I love these references. Also, Eight-Legged Freaks is such a fun movie. I totally forgot the name. Oh, that movie whips. We should all just watch Eight-Legged Freaks. Is a That's like one of I my favorite. That, that, was, that was one of Scar Joe's like, first movies, right? Oh, yeah. Scar Scarlett Johansson. Who, perfect score. <laughs> yeah, who plays like, I think, Carrie Werher's daughter. And they're like, pretty much like the same age Alma. maybe she's like 10 years it's insane what an insane movie but i love it it's good yeah <laughs> uh, but, but yeah i think um i mean overall like did you guys watch this movie did you rent it on amazon this time around uh did i i rented how did it on you amazon. watch it i i watched it on, actually it's interesting these are the first uh, i watched both these movies because usually what i'll do i have a big old laptop uh, i have a big old monitor I'll watch the movie on my big monitor while I type notes on my computer. But for yeah. these go rounds, I just watched it on uh, Amazon via Roku on my mm -hmm. big TV screen. Yeah, I, watched, I noticed. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, no, I was just, just going to say, I, I uh, Patrick tipped tipped me off to if you sign up for Cinemax for the free week trial, yeah. you get uh, you get Sophie's Choice uh, for free. So I believe I watched it in HD through mm -hmm. through Cinemax. So. In our previous viewings, it had been on HBO, on HBO Max, and that's where I watched it the first two times. But it, they moved it to Cinemax, and I just rented it for two bucks. And it's a standard definition version for the rental, oh, and man. it gave the movie this insane, like, out of time because it looks like it was ripped from a, v a v VHS. Yeah. So everything was kind of the colors were even more faded, especially in the, the concentration camp scenes were practically black and white. 
yeah, and it weird. gave it this like I, mean, I was talking to Patrick about it the other night. This extraordinary dreamlike quality that mm-hmm. I didn't it hadn't given me before because it was like it almost felt like this like lost art like um tale of this time period that like it's like been passed around or something like that and it gave it more of um like a stingo's memory yeah. kind of feel which i which i think helped my screening of it uh just piggybacking off of that i don't know if it was again my the the, the version i watched off of of cinemax but there were a couple scenes where the lighting dimmed did did you guys what i mean by that is like the scene is happening but but the lights will slowly get lower in the scene that happened like three or four times mm-hmm. in the film and i'm wondering <laughs> did I, anyone else catch this was this something intentional or was it something weird with my tv <laughs> this movie has a really like otherworldly almost stage stagey kind of vibe in some of the scenes it kind of goes along i think what you were saying nick about using kind of the wide master shots and the close-ups and letting the actors do their thing and i think also i mean kevin klein this was his first movie but he was already a two-time tony award winner oh by the time this has oh, happened yeah. and meryl streep has obviously had extraordinary quite a bit of stage experience too and you're kind of relying especially on kevin klein's performance he's he's doing a lot of stage actor stuff in his performance so i'm almost wondering if like the lighting design and kind of even going to because i think the lighting changes in like either tonal or when like they're going into like a story or a different kind of flashback or something like that so i think that they're using actual visual cues they're trying so many different things to make it cinematic in a way but um some are successful and some are not yeah yeah um but overall actually again it's not it's not the movie that i remembered it to be mm-hmm. I, and i mean that and i kind of and i and i definitely mean that in a positive way i look it's definitely not an upper film we all know this but i also um, my 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 memory was like this is a super super bummer film yeah and yes there's a lot of bummer moments in this movie for sure but it also there's a lot of just some almost uplifting and beautiful moments too i i guess I'm not going to be as scared to watch Sophie's <laughs> Choice again is what I'm saying. I remembered it being way more like just super guttural and depressing. Mm-hmm. And, and this was, there's a lot of just, be- you know, a lot of like happy, beautiful moments, especially as you guys have been already saying that the relationship between and the chemistry between Meryl and Kevin on screen is just, I mean, it is, it is magnetic. It is truly mm-hmm. like a beautiful thing. They're absolutely consumed by one another. I mean, it's incredibly romantic and sensual, um, in, in a very almost unhealthy way, right? Uh, oh, sure, clearly, yeah. Clearly, you know, clearly. Um, and, and, and the reveal of his character being uh, schizophrenic. I, I Again, I, oh, forget, yeah. I, I forgot all those details because of course you're like, oh my God, Kevin Klein is just this abusive piece of shit who's like controlling and manipulative. And then, and then I'm, not, I'm not trying to find excuses for him, but like, you know, he obviously is, he has mental challenges. He's going through something which, which just gives more nuance and insight to his character and more understanding. And you realize, okay, he's not a total horrible human being. It is like interesting. He's complicated. Oh, totally. He's and, extraordinarily complicated. Super complicated. And you could like, I feel like what's crazy about it is like, you could have a movie that's just about Meryl. You could have a movie that's just about Klein's character. Like both of those characters are so rich in detail. Yeah. 
and you almost wish wish that like yeah but you need the stingo i think you do need like someone who's like an outside that like uh it's because it's like it's hard you need some mooring to a certain degree right well yeah you need you need you need the voice of reason in a lot of ways right this is what happens this is what happens when we do an improv scene and it's three people (laughs) on a train to crazy town and there's no one there to be as we used to call it the straight man but now you know just the voice of reason and, and really the eyes and ears to help guide the audience through what we're seeing to basically pat us on the back and be like hey just so this is what's happening and i'm here to be your guide through this story and there mm-hmm. needs there needs to be a person there needs to be a person there that's uh, commenting and reacting to captain crunch asking hagrid where the crystals are Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> what, a fun, what a crazy, crazy audience surrogate. Yes. Because they're yeah. too. They're like as interesting as they are. I think they might actually be too big and com- frankly complicated just to spend two hours like watching them go beat by beat through their journey. It's like how they're revealed. It's it. The kind of interesting thing about the structure, which at first is definitely like a little off-putting. It takes a lot of time hell, it's taken practically three screenings to kind of get on the tonal and rhythmic wavelength of this movie. And, but you need, if you're going to do it like this, you need Stingo, if you're going to tell the story like this. And, um, but I mean, it's, it is, it's, you you do feel bad for Peter McNichol though, because like Kevin Klein gets that part where he's conducting in front of the windows and stuff like that. You're just like, well, this is your first movie and you get something like that. And that's like, you're a star. You oh, do yeah. that scene, you're a star. I, and, I, t- I tell you what, had you I know, watched Peter this- McNichol doesn't get that. Yeah, had I watched this movie on my computer, I would have taken, that was like the one scene where I was like, ah, oh, I want a screenshot of that scene. Uh, if only I wasn't watching this on my TV this time, because that is like just a beautiful moment. Just take him like conducting, and there's like five weird Kevin Kleins like mm-hmm. conducting back at him through their <laughs> reflections in the windows. Well, this is this is gonna be a very weird comment. I know it's all about Meryl, but uh, Kevin Klein's uh, con- body control and and his ability to use his body as as an actor. I'm just speaking as as I think we've we've all acted ourselves is so impressive in my in my opinion he is incredibly good at that just his ability to to go through the motions and make it and and don i had no idea that kevin had i forgot that he had such a strong theater background and that really really shows on um on screen and yeah this this conductor that conductor moment was a perfect um portrayal of it him jumping up on like the light post when they're cheersing a champagne on the bridge when he jumps up the window, even like he does, like kind of like a swing when he gets Stingo's story yeah. earlier on too. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh-huh. He's so graceful and he's so fluid and he's so confident. And I think to get back to kind of the problematic aspects of the character, Nathan, you yeah. need an actor who is that charismatic and that powerful of a presence. Mm to pull off his ugliness and still be able to kind of go along for the ride and feel bad for Nathan. You're, you're absolutely right. I agree. So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think we all agree. Like this, you know, this was a very good screening of this movie. It's been very impressive. I think, you know, to go back to something just to kind of tie things together on this film, I can't help but think about the idea of like, 
most acting versus best acting and how confused I was the first two times I saw this movie with the kind of the most factors, the languages, the weight loss, the weight gain, you know, all the different looks, everything that she has to do in this movie. But at its heart, this is a, you know, deeply character driven, deeply complicated role that requires a lot more than just like learning a language. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's what I took away from this time around. And that's, you know, put it bluntly, pretty fucking impressive. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's, a, it's crazy, actually. Yeah. yeah. And this early in her career, too. I mean, this was 1982. She actually already had an Academy Award by this point, but, you know, she, her entire, like, but as we've, you know, we've talked about it before, her entire, like, her rise was pretty, you, you know, it wasn't like it took her 10 years of, like, working the boards off Broadway. She was pretty, from the second anybody saw her, they were like, oh, this might be the greatest actor I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it was just an immediate, like, you know, astronomical explosion, you know, that everyone who saw her, like, you know, I just saw Al Pacino telling a story. He said, John Cazale called him on the phone. He's like, I'm doing this play with this actor. And I think she's the best actress I've ever seen in my life. And Al Pacino's like, get the hell out of here. And then I went and saw him, you know, I was like, yeah, I think he, I think he might be right. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah, I mean, she, well, obviously that's the, that's the point of this season of this podcast, isn't it? But she, I mean, hands down has got to be one of the top, she's, I think, top five best actor, actresses of our lifetime. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think regard, like, it, yeah, it goes beyond, obviously, with her Academy Award nominations, everything like that, too. But it goes beyond actor, actress. I think it's just pure, you know, screen performer, screen movie star. She's... um easily one of the greatest of all time. And we've learned that on this show. And, you know, and, and one thing I was reading about her too is how her stardom has oddly outlasted her male contemporaries who are all yeah. these explosive actors. Like they've all become, you know, doing either supporting roles or retired. And she seems stronger than ever. Well, on, on, the, on that note, yeah, I mean, there is, we, obviously you guys know this, there is a cult of Meryl. I mean, yeah. meaning there's, there's people that actually idolize her and, 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 and for good reason. So she, I'm sure, can cherry pick anything she wants to do. Because again, if she gets plunked into a film, whether her role is two lines, two minutes, or the lead, she is, you, every director, every writer, everyone in that cast and that production is going to have full confidence in feeling safe that this person's going to help guide the picture because she can elevate anything she's in a hundred percent. She could be in SpongeBob the musical and she will crush Sandy. You know what I mean? Like she is, it's a guarantee that mama Mia would not have been as paid attention to if she didn't agree to be the lead of it. It's like, what is she doing in this? This must mean something. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. hundred percent. And it's so interesting too, like looking at her contemporary, because I was trying to think while you were saying this, okay, like who are her contemporaries? And, uh, you know, you look at people like Al Pacino and like Robert De Niro, where like, yeah, sure. They've had like some, like, you'll have like an Irishman here and a, uh, what was the film, Mang- like a Manglehorn there? I don't know if Manglehorn is good or not. That's probably yeah, not I mean, 
but I mean, he, you know, Pacino was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but it oh, was not, yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't a leading role or anything. It was definitely like, you oh, know, yeah, a supporting a very, role. very much a supporting role. But even, but even then, like, and he was also in The Irishman, duh. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but then, like, they don't have anything. Co- I think the problem too is like these well, Meryl guys. Streep ain't make it, Meryl Streep is not making Dirty Grandpa. That's what I was gonna say. Is like the yeah. thing is like these guys. Like it's like a. It's like almost like a curse. Funny enough, how like you know they used to get all these roles that Meryl could probably never get. Uh, but then as a result, it kind of bites them in the butt, and they're kind of stuck making either Dirty Grandpas or if you're like a Bruce Willis guy, you're stuck making like weird action movies in Serbia or whatever (laughs) also on a very very like practical level i get the impression she's much better with her money than any (laughs) (laughs) yeah she's she's not yeah she's not like buying like a pyramid like nicholas cage or whatever like (laughs) or like half of tribeca like robert de niro oh god or like yeah like putting all of your money into becoming a blues musician also Uh, frankly um Almost all of them have extensive alimony bills that yeah. she does not have to deal with. Uh, and it, there's, so there's a lot of like practical, realistic reasons why you take a dirty grandpa. But it goes, <laughs> goes to show how smart and how like yeah. aware she was of each choice she made in her career and how smart her moves are and how, you know, she never, every one of her movies, I don't think there's the movie she's made that there hasn't been a she has she couldn't give you a very good reason why she chose to do that movie unless it's a very early in her career type thing where but um you know even something like we've talked about before she devil or the river wild she's doing those movies for a very like strategic almost reason like she wants to challenge herself she wants to play a good you know frankly almost all of her roles too are um you know, follow her political, social, feminist bent of like what she wants to portray. Of course, as well. You know what? Some portion of strength. Some. You know, she. You know, we talked about in the last episode. She's not doing Pulp Fiction. She doesn't believe in those kind of movies, even if she respects. Yeah. How they were put together, it's just not in her wheelhouse, and she chooses not to do them. A lot of those other guys have not had like maintain that level of control over a career which i think is also another reason why this tournament is so tough she doesn't have like you know we've talked a lot about like the narrow dirty grandpa or you yeah. know, frankly jack and jill for al pacino or something oh, like that man. she doesn't have like an all-out like oh my god what the I, hell is this jill. kind I of see, movie it's so, it's so funny when you said it earlier about how she like made sure her life wouldn't lead to like a dirty grant like i just imagined like a young meryl streep play like, doing the 3d chess in her brain and seeing all the like the different routes her life could take, and like making sure like it's not the la- the the route that leads to dirty grandma too or whatever. <laughs> no, it's led to it's led to her showing up for ten minutes in Little Women and oh, yeah. raise it and elevating the prestige in the movie by doing so, like oh, yeah. putting her stamp on this new version of this story by a director who is obviously well on their way to being a if they're not already kind of a major in the history books, so, I mean, two for two, obviously. She'll be a notor. She, on, she is a notor, almost. Yeah, and we're well on, you know, on the edge of our seats for whatever her next film is going to be. What is Greta and, doing next, do we know? Uh, the well, Dirty I mean, Grandma. We talk, 
which she's oh. actually start, she's going to be she's the co-lead of Bombax next film. She's going to be acting. Oh, well, she they're together, right? I'm not. I, I'm, yeah, and um, I mean, we talked. We on the Kyle Clark episode, we we were all like, "What is we somehow got off on a Bombax tangent?" <laughs> you know, and um, his next movie they just announced is a adaptation of Don DeLillo's White Noise, which is um, a pretty thrilling choice, if you ask me. I'm a bit of a DeLillo head, mm. but. Um, and Adam Driver, of course, and Greta Gerwig are going to be the leads. Oh, God. I talk about another dude who I have a huge crush on, Adam Driver. Dude, he's I got the same thing that I think he's got a lot of actually Kevin Klein type, that energy, that physicality, that presence. Well, I, again, not to devolve. Well, like, Juilliard grads, too. I feel like we've been yeah. talking for five hours, but I will say the, the, big, di- the big difference is Kevin Klein, there's this. Uh, kind of again you had said his fluidity of his motions and theatrical and he's so charismatic and he's very conventionally handsome whereas adam driver he's got such a presence i mean they Mm -hmm. both you know what i'm saying adam driver comes on screen i remember seeing him when he was first on girls on hbo and just being kind of in awe of his acting and just feeling like who is this guy and then he just started taking like Hollywood by storm popping up in his choices on those those first episodes of girls though he um they were so weird yeah and so surprising but then they ended up making perfect sense but there are so many actors around his age who are they make very conventional moves yeah right not that they're bad but they're trying to be conventional movie stars and he somehow has become a movie star by not doing any of that well, and again, I know this is not the Adam Driver show, but he he had no intention of becoming an actor, and then he kind mm-hmm. of had like you know quarter life crisis and shifted into acting. So his his un- unlike some of these other actors who, who I'm sure from a young age was doing stage acting in school, Adam kind of fell into it. Yeah, um, and 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 I think it shows because uh, as you're saying, these more unconventional choices that make him very awkward and almost unnatural to watch in some ways but at the same time incredibly engaging and just captures your attention every time he's on screen and everything that i've seen him in i can't take my eyes off of him he's just one of those people that just you know steals again steals the screen and captures very few um there's very few talents in kind of the hollywood movie industry whether it's writers or directors or actors who have lived a life and had experiences that don't pertain to this ultimate end game goal of being an actor, of being a writer. Like, that's why you see so many, like, frankly, TV shows that seem like they're in an echo chamber and they're only conversing with other writers who went to Ivy League schools and they have no, like, voice for anything else. And I think he brings a little bit of that to the table. And I think that's actually a good transition (laughs) <laughs> to my existential issues with the Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> and um, can we take a quick time out? I got to get my computer charged and I'm going to move rooms. No worries. But yes, the existential elements of the Devil Wears Prada. I'm going to give us the stats on this movie real quick. You've heard him before. Let's hear him again. Directed by David Frankel from a screenplay by Aline Broch McKenna, based on the novel uh, or book of the same title by Lauren Weisberger. This movie was released in 2006. 
budgeted at $35 million, made a massive $327.9 million at the box. Whoa! It, this is a big, big, big hit, big cultural sensation. The Wikipedia page, as I've mentioned before, is 34 printed pages. Mm-hmm. Um, they received a 75% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The site's critical consensus reads, a rare film that surpasses the quality of its source novel, This Devil is a witty expose of New York's fashion scene with Meryl Streep in top form and Anne Hathaway more than holding her own. The <laughs> film was, um, in terms of the all-important awards, was nominated for two, Best Costume Design and, of course, Best Actress, Meryl Streep. It won neither. But arguably, Meryl Streep's, I think a lot of people would argue, definitive performance. But I was going to bring up, you know, Nick mentioned he already he's seen this movie many, many times. I think Countless times. Countless times. This is, uh, this is definitely like, hey, this isn't Bill Simmons' podcast, but this is a rewatchable. We'll put it that way. Oh, yeah. But, I will tell you this, guys. When I was watching this, um, I I don't know why. I watched it actually um, this morning, Mm. and I started it around 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) So it was already a weird scene. And so I'm sitting here, and suddenly I see him by KT Tunstall comes on, and I'm watching Anne Hathaway go through it, getting dressed, getting ready for the day. And I kind of realized that I was also 22 give or take when this movie came out because i believe anne hathaway and i are about the same age and i'm kind of the same age as like her friends in the circle in this movie and i just started thinking about like what i was doing (laughs) when i was that age (laughs) and like i was working at a record store i was hanging out with friends who also worked at the record store but i noticed that in this and then going even back to julie powell's friends and julie and julia and I don't know if this is a movie scene or if this is what we're kind of getting to when we were talking about kind of the echo chamber of the type A personalities of Hollywood. Everyone's scenes are about like their careers and their job moves. And everyone in Devil Wears Prada has a very like mercenary attitude toward like pushing forward in their careers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to do like the same thing with my life. I don't do it to be paid for right now, but I was just like struck like, Am I doing this wrong? <laughs> you know, that was like the existential vibe I had in this film. And like, because like even like Anne Hathaway's like, oh, I went to Northwestern. I was the editor of the paper. Like her parents seemed to have like pushed her in that correct direction. And I was just like, the hell was I doing? <laughs> 22. Like, I, and, but you know, to get like on a positive thing, I guess it's like, oh, you're out and about, you're meeting people, you're seeing all these like concerts and like having all these life experiences. But I was just like, this is so odd. And like, is this normal? Was I what I was doing normal? I don't know. And then I realized I'm Nate, her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was doing. Wait, you were a restaurateur at 22? No, like, because here's the deal. Yes, he has a, yes, he claims to be a sous chef. Why is he never working at 10 p.m. in New York? I don't think he's very good at his, I don't think he's taking it particularly seriously. And he's always kind of like bouncing around. He's like, hey, what's happening? Like, I'm just going to watch the best damn sports show and be home and kind of enjoy being young and (laughs) not be like, and he has no concept of like, 
the future mm-hmm. or like <laughs> why is it that he like is so offended by the fact she has to work late yeah it, yeah there's just a variety of things that he seems to and at the end of it they're kind of thinking about getting back together i'm like no you two are going on completely separate paths she might not work at runway anymore mm-hmm. but that's her so she's going to behave this way at the new yorker she's going to behave this way at the atlantic yeah. or wherever she ends up going like you are different personalities and have different trajectories and i was like oh i had my attitude was innate attitude during those era <laughs> oh yeah, same era. yeah so i have a lot more sympathy for entourage than i did <laughs> I mean, the first time around, but it's like, yeah, he's going out to dinner and like Tracy Tom's like, I'm this art dealer. And the guy from Mad Men is like, I do this. And he's like, I'm a sous chef. I'm doing wine reductions all day long. But yeah, for some reason, I'm always available at night, even though I work at a restaurant in New York. I'll be there like, prognosticating about French fries. Yeah. yeah or like, like <laughs> burning, burning a uh, grilled cheese sandwich. Like with my eight dollars worth of Harlsberg or whatever it was. No, and, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also and like I just I don't yeah. know. I was just very struck, and I also like I also was inc- I become more and more sympathetic to Miranda, and don't see her as the bad guy at all each uh. time I see this movie more. Interesting. I mean, a lot of thoughts. I, I will. I love this yeah. analysis on on Adrian's character here. Because you're absolutely right. If you are working, having worked in the, in the restaurant industry for many years, not never back of house, but everyone knows you're working late, especially yeah. like the city in New York. Oh yeah. If, if, when, when bars are open till 4 a.m., you know, and the kitchen might be open till 2, you're getting off at 3 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning. So why is he always <laughs> yeah, awake who, and waiting for Anne? <laughs> yeah, who gives a shit if she has to go to a party till 11? <laughs> like, Yeah, it, but you're, uh, the analysis is very funny. They, they completely, I know, the, the end of the film when they're at that, what is it, a coffee shop or sandwich place? And they're kind of like catching up, rekindling to just be like, hey, where have you been for the last blah, blah, yeah. blah. And, and and he's hinting at like, you're going to come with me to Boston? And she's like, well, if you'll have me. And I'm like, wait, are we going to just disregard the last two hours of character development here? <laughs> like transformation. In a, in a quietly nuanced version of a very real thing that happens when you're in a major, like, they said they'd been together for a while. I couldn't believe tra- the Andy I know is madly in love with Nate. What friend ever says that to anyone anyway? But regardless, I will like, say like, if, they if are drifting apart very, very quietly in the movie. Yeah. And it's not it's and it's actually kind of a nice thing that the movie does. That is a very realistic thing that I think happens to certainly happen to me. But it's certain I think a lot of people who have like a big relationship, like a post college or a coming out of college relationship and then you just realize oh like we're moving in a different direction and we didn't even know we were and that hurts and you don't want to admit to it and i think that's captured in this movie well even to the point of my kind of like existential crisis of what was i doing you know thinking back hard on being 22 (laughs) yeah i would say if you were um if you were uh uh the nate character then i was definitely doug that's the rich that's the rich summer that's the rich summer that's the friend that's the friend of a friend oh god (laughs) and is he in a relationship with tracy toms or are they all just friends it's very unclear 
No, they're just like generic friends, I think. And like, it's like, it's kind of wacky. He knows so much about fashion. That's the thing, though. It's like, I might be reading this too much because at the end of the day, all of them are types in order to to push story along and they don't have like inner lives their own. And, you know, especially the two friends, their entire job is to kind of shame Anne Hathaway for changing. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and, and I also want to go back to when you were talking about these these characters living in New York. This was very typical of movies at this time. Half these people have creative jobs, right? Everyone has this creative job. Oh, I'm, I'm an artist. I work in a kitchen and I, I, I work at like an advertising company, but I hate my job. It's like, dude, this is what a majority of America does. They do like shitty work that no one cares about. Yet in these, you know, let's call them Nora, Nora Ephron type pictures. Everyone has this fun, like creative, cool, hip, job which is in not my sleep deprived 4 30 in the morning what am i doing with myself moment in watching this you're absolutely right though and the same thing was in julia and julia everyone yeah. even if they're complaining about their job which they inevitably are in these movies everyone has an awesome enviable job yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly you know, yeah. it's like no one is like like <laughs> you know, like you in movies you either have like a job that's really great that you says sucks or you have the worst job in the world yeah there are no like welcome you know the truest jobs are actually just ones that are like day-to-day like man this is kind of boring and yeah, this like is I, just what i do and this yeah is like, like i'm an office manager i'm a copywriter or something yeah and it's yeah. like it, it it's soul shattering in a completely mundane way in unlike you know i watched this the latest ken loesch movie where called sorry we missed you where the guy has to take a job as like an amazon driver and it's one of the most terrifying two hours of pain (laughs) that i've seen in ages (laughs) you know it's just like okay the best or you could be a copywriter but you know what i really want to write for the new yorker it's like you know shut up but i also am jealous and i agree (laughs) we all do quiet And, and i think that that's like part of the issue with anne hathaway's character overall and I think a lot of things that like these echo chamber Hollywood writers give you is this element of like what seems like it sucks to these people who have their entire lives. Okay, they were born into a good family. They went to the right prep school. Oh yeah. And then they went to the Ivy League school. Then they got filtered directly into the Hollywood writers room chain. Is that there isn't a level of like, oh, things might not like if Anne Hathaway loses the job in this movie she's still going to be fine oh totally oh no yeah she went, she, yeah she went to northwest she went to a fine school she, <laughs> she's dad attractive. seems to be doing fine yeah oh, yeah. yeah by I, the way we never we never know the amount of cash that is shoved into this envelope <laughs> <laughs> i know that's hundred thousand dollars yeah I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's heard, one million dollars yeah. I, I mean clearly it was it was only so you know obviously people can't see us but it was it was very thin so it couldn't have been too many hundreds but i love a, I, I hope this helps you with rent i mean how much could he possibly i mean new york rent is is exorbitant it could have been yeah. more than a thousand bucks and i know we live in a like even compared to 2006 we live in this very heightened time of income inequality and thinking about privilege and that kind of thing and this movie is almost innocent yeah oh yeah kind of like like we talked a little bit in our last episode with christina about what couldn't be you what you couldn't get away with anymore oh yeah totally in this movie 
Um, I found, and speaking of which, I found the Christian character and subplot more queasy this time around than I did the last time, and I found that queasy the last time around. Oh, too. yeah. And, I, and oh, yeah. I will say, too, that like yeah. uh, last time, I liked the novelty of it being so 2006. Like, this is like a, such a film of its era, and this time that novelty kind of wore off a bit, and I was like, oh, this is very 2006. Yeah, no, his, I mean, his character, Christian's character, for sure, is... Uh... Is a is a is a douchebag. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's, yeah, there's no way around it. I mean, he's a she's a charming guy, but there there is a specific scene, the scene where they're uh, twirling and embracing in Paris, and she keeps on saying like, essentially, she she keeps on saying no, and he yeah. and he and, and she's like, I'm drunk. I you know I shouldn't. I just broke up with Adrian Grenier two days ago. Blah blah blah, and he just takes advantage of a situation, and then. If that wasn't shitty enough, then the, the morning after uh, reveals that, you know, he's about to, or what we believe is about to oust her boss. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, so full douchebag. He's also completely holding like, oh, I'll introduce you to my editor at New York Magazine kind of career bullshit that, you know, oh, yeah, I'll trade you that for, you know, a lay. And that's um... how how old is his care? I mean, because how old is Anne Hathaway supposed to be in this? Is she a brand new graduate? Like I early twenties? So. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. we're saying that she's like I guess twenty two. So how long? How old is Christian supposed to be in this film? Late thirties, early forties? Forty five. I don't know. <laughs> he's like fifty eight. <laughs> he's a scarf. He's a scarf enthusiast. That I don't think that happens till after you're forty. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's, like, that's like a meme. It's like those memes. It's like, or those videos, like, tell me you're 40 without telling me you're 40. <laughs> it's just like scarf enthusiasts. Well, I, I think I wrote a script once. It's like the older they get, the less, the more buttons they're unbuttoning <laughs> at the top of their shirt. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so funny to me. Uh, that's real. I mean, but it's so funny. Like, Tracy Thompson, like, you're hiding in dark corners with some handsome like fashion guy and every scene he shows up in he's emerging yeah. from some sort of like like a batman villain from some sort of dark <laughs> corner in this movie it's like oh there, there he is again it, it yeah it's he's he's totally being creepy yeah yeah and but it's 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 a very like on the positive side though this movie like this movie flies and it's deeply entertaining every scene is oh, yes. good there isn't like a bad like like uh there's not a bad scene in the movie there, there's it, no uh there's no what's his face trying to get laid for five minutes yeah. with that leslie girl yes mm. yes there is no stingo yeah, yeah going to go get laid scene yeah there's <laughs> everything like they could have like and they easily could have like gone to Adrian Grenier's restaurant and had him like complaining with the guys in the kitchen. Man, she's working too much. But they don't even yeah. have that scene in the movie. Like, yeah, his character is really, uh, really underdeveloped, which is kind of crappy, in my opinion. Only I, I think so because you do have someone again who's coming off of the fame of Entourage, and I, I you know, bless me, I love that show. And he's not really being utilized, uh, and we don't really get to fully see his side of uh, the story. It doesn't really even make too much sense. Like they, they, their relationship is basically put on the backboard back burner. In they look movie. they look handsome together, but they don't seem like personality wise all that compatible, even from the beginning of the movie. 
And I I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like almost like the rich summer character almost fits with her more than the. <laughs> than yeah, in, a, in a different movie, yeah, it's a it's a love triangle movie about the nerd who's actually in love with her, who's better for her, but then yeah. the hunk is with yeah. her at first. But fortunately, that's not what this movie is about. This movie is <laughs> no. actually about female relationships in a in a workplace in which they're striving for power within that realm, which is. Uh-huh actually far more unusual <laughs> i will weird. say though that uh that uh meryl streep's performance like i read that like kierkegaard quote in the beginning because when i first watched this movie when i watched this movie this was the first time where i was like oh this is almost like like religious or cultish <laughs> like there's their need to like support this like like in, in the magazine is like their god because when I when I when I watched it, I always thought that Miranda just had the supreme confidence in herself. But it's not that she has a supreme confidence in herself, is my theory. It's more that like she has to be the best so the magazine can be the best. Her whole life is for the magazine. It is just like being part of an insane cult. Like it is like this, like, yeah, look where it's how, like, look how shit on Nigel is. Oh yeah. And he's he's part of it too. He drinks the cool yeah. and it's like yeah. and it, and it, to be fair, it's like it is like, uh, you know, the way that they view it, their like philosophy about it is like, yeah, we dictate people's lives via what they wear. Like we're, we're the people that change. So like, I, w- I get it. I get the need, but it is like, yeah, I don't know. Like just like that dimension, that ferventness, that belief in themselves, like that, like almost crazy. Cause it is like, to me, it is like the willingness to like murder Isaac, you know, when God tells you to. Like it's that level for me. Like Miranda's, like her willingness to totally destroy her career and Patrick. like her, or not her career, her life, her like relationships. Patrick, we really are in the vortex here. If, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm questioning the last fifteen years of my life and career choices while watching the movie, <laughs> and you're like thinking about it in biblical cultish sense, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we are really like we're really in it. And, oh, totally. You know, but one thing I noticed this time around, too, because I, I was really paying attention, was <laughs> Stanley Tucci's last scene is the scene where he doesn't get the job. And he's yeah. like, maybe should. And that we don't see him again, Mm-mm. which is kind of for such a lovely character. Yeah. Incredibly tragic. Oh, like, so- I was very well, like. I, I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's so reflective of just how ruthless that industry is, is at least I think what they're trying to convey, whether or not it's truthful or that honest yeah i mean that, obviously that's 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 the point with it uh i actually thought the most dishonest thing in the movie was miranda writing the letter of recommendation oh yeah the, same here at the end of the movie which i didn't realize before but i saw it this time around yeah see mean, how, how do you how so you mean you feel like her character would not have written it yeah i don't i think she would have just said you betrayed me you yeah. you like patrick was saying about the cult it's a cult. Of it almost it's like no you i saw what i saw on you and you like it's like um i mean you hear about this in like scientology and shit like that yeah. like the second of command the second in command by having a change of heart realizing what a sham it is and then like they are the one who betrayed them the most <laughs> like um what's well, like in the or, or almost like in the master when philip Seymour hoffman's trying to get joaquin phoenix back in the fold yeah. He's so desperate for it. And that's the one he wants the most. And it's like breaks his heart. And he's like, we will never see each other again. We will be great enemies if we do. It's like, 
I don't think like, but I know because it's a movie, it has and to have it has that. to tie it all together and have this great, yeah. Because that's what makes this movie entertaining and makes all the choices like, you know, I almost open the show with like saying, "What is a good movie?" <laughs> you know? like, oh, God. Because is it something that is purely brutally honest? Like I just brought up that Ken Loesch movie. Sorry, we missed you. That movie's honest to a point where it's miserabilism. Uh, yeah, but yeah. is that a but is that good? Is that necessary? Or something like this, which this is a like Nick, you've brought up Entourage as well. A fantasy, a complete and utter fantasy, and Absolutely, like yeah. the arc tying together perfectly. Even yeah. like, and I know it was like a. I read too that the scene where she calls Emily up and gives her the dresses from Paris. Apparently, that was the last minute rewrite when they found out what they had in Emily Blunt. And they wanted to like give her a moment, basically, yeah. at the end of the movie to like tie that up together. It's so neat. This movie is a damn machine. Oh, yeah. And I, oh, in, yeah. Terms, in terms of how well it works. And that's what makes it like you can watch. You can't watch Sophie's Choice 30 times, but you can mm-hmm. watch this movie 30 times. Does that make it a better movie? Than, I don't even know. Like, that's like the another, I guess, question for Kierkegaard. If Kierkegaard <laughs> was a cinema fan, like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, what is. What's a good movie? Yeah, what's a good movie? You know? <laughs> like, and... the, the deeper we go down this rabbit hole, the less we know, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's the thesis of this entire thing is that there is no answer. Yeah, they're just all good, and you should just enjoy yourself and live in the moment. But, you know. no, no, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, a movie like Devil Wears Prada has such a specific. It, it is a very cliched, structured film. It hits all the right beats. It wraps things up, I guess, kind of except for the Stanley Tucci thing. But it does wrap up pretty much all the loose ends, and it gives you that happy ending. It's a feel-good movie. Yeah, feel-good movies have high rewatchability. You know what yeah. I mean? It's the type of movie you can, it also has very iconic scenes. It has iconic lines. Great it lines. Is, it is beautiful. It goes to beautiful, there's beautiful people on screen. There's beautiful places and sets and locations. Um, so, you know, any any movie that includes both Paris and New York, I mean, come on, right? Uh, and uh, and, re- and going back to the 2006 thing, back in the day when you can actually shoot in those places <laughs> you know? and, like, yeah. and what a brilliant thing is to actually go there and like see seeing Anne Hathaway and uh the mentalist walk around Paris yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, all right Don's only allowed to refer to him as the mentalist for the rest of the <laughs> I was just yeah because I was wondering if he was using his like mentalist mind games to become a pickup artist <laughs> in this movie wait so I can't I forget the premise of the mentalist is he like actually a psychic or is it just like he pretends to be a psychic what's the i don't know the mentalist was one of those like so obviously if you watch basketball and tnt they've got a series of things that exist like tv shows that exist only as commercials during basketball so like there was like franklin and bash oh yeah years ago that like my my buddy nick and i actually ended up watching two episodes of franklin and bash because we watched so much basketball that it drove us to it <laughs> in the same way that CBS NFL Sundays and Simon Baker, Jim Nance saying, and Simon Baker is the mentalist and he's looking <laughs> smug with his scarf on that show too. And you're like, 
what is this about? This guy seems so impressed. Like he's like I, I think that, that that actor is unfortunately born with that face of being self-impressed. Oh yeah. <laughs> and it's just, he's just like that's just the way it is. Like it's permanently I, smug. I I mentioned on the last episode I watched the John Cazale documentary and like the modern actors they interview are Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm. Steve Buscemi, and Sam Rockwell. Yeah. And it's like because they're in the tradition of John Cazale of showing up being a little off kilter and having that face that they're never going to be like the ultra handsome leading man, but they're going to steal the show every time. Like when you're an actor, you just end up with that. And it kind of even goes to Anne Hathaway. It's like, yeah, you're going to end up wearing the nice clothes and being beautiful because you're Anne, because you look the, like Anne Hathaway. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, there's just no way around it. And another, I guess, miracle of Meryl Streep is that she has never fallen into that zone yeah that even the best actors fall into there's never been like yeah there's never been a Meryl Streep movie where like she wears like a frumpy sweater and then like they call her a freak and a monster because she's wearing a frumpy sweater and then she takes off the frumpy sweater and suddenly she's like well you're a babe yeah it's like you're Aphrodite incarnate well she also she also was never a female actress in the 90s. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That, 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 that happened to pretty much all the, uh, we had, we, I had mentioned earlier, but Rachel Lee Cook, I think even Sarah Michelle Gellar, there was a bunch that fell into this category of let's make them look schlumpy. And then they go through some transformation and all of a sudden, you know, they're you know, in halfway like, to put his diaries. Didn't, didn't even Britney Spears have a music video where that happened to her over the course of five minutes? I'm pretty, <laughs> pretty wait, certain. Wait, which one? I thought I watched every Britney Spears music video. Is that the one where she's like on the moon singing? No. Oh. Oh. <laughs> what, what, what an amazing... Uh, what a side trip that is in that music video, though. Like it just starts off as a regular dance music video, then all of a sudden she's on a moon with the astronaut, and then it goes back to being a dance. Like I just oh, want to be a, no like, the pit, the pit, like the pitch for that. Like, and then it briefly we have a space interlude, but then we'll be back to a typical thing that you Here, know about. Here's my review. Where's Mac tonight? <laughs> if you're going to the moon, I better see Mac tonight playing a damn piano. Wait, what are you talking? About? <laughs> The famed commercial character Mac Tonight. <laughs> oh my god! I, Wait, I'm gonna have god. to. <laughs> okay, god. your references are really what ties this show together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who cannot? Who can forget this beautiful mug? Uh, okay. I, oh my god! What? <laughs> but I wanted to actually like we've been. Um, I actually think Stanley Tucci's storyline in Devil Wears Prada is actually tied up but it's tied up in a unfortunate like in a way that makes you sad for the character and this is such an upbeat movie otherwise everyone else kind of gets a win in this movie but like he's gonna be back sitting next to Meryl Streep who I was in this time around too I was watching it's like he gets the best seat he gets to sit next to her during all the shows but do they have any level of personal relationship at all, despite the fact he's probably been at runway with her for 20 years? I'm, probably not. I mean, definitely not, because that's yeah. that's that's shown clearly in that one, in the only scene that's supposed to endear us to Meryl Streep's character, which, you know, is the scene when they're in Paris and Anne Hathaway walks into her room. She's not wearing makeup. She's like in a robe. And she just finds out basically that her husband has filed for a divorce. And there's this moment which is, you know, the, the one moment in the film where we're like, oh man, Meryl Streep is a real person with feelings and emotions. She's not a monster. If that's how she is 
you know, with her first assistant, I don't know, it's pretty much assumed that she's not the most open, emotional, forward person with, with other people in her life. Clearly she's very closed and reserved. Um, so yeah. I think to get to where she is, she believes she has to be that way. It's, I mean, it goes along with, like, yeah. you already did it to, you did it to Emily. But um, I mean, <laughs> wait, I think we talked your, about it. That impression again? Do your in the um, window impression? Let me, let me uh, I get a, yeah, get into but it. You already did. You did it to Emily. Oh yeah. You guys can't see it, but Don's also playing with his sunglasses inside the back of a limo. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I also, I put on a spectacular wig. They <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> have a nice gray, like, uh... but it's, it's like... such a, you know, to get into, we've, we've talked a lot about a lot of other things related to Devil Wears Prada to get into Meryl Streep's performance in this movie. I, we, I read it in the book, the Queen Meryl book that she, um, took she actually was thinking a lot about clint eastwood when with this performance because she worked with him on bridges and she said that on set he barely speaks above a whisper and he's still like clearly the most he's scary and in charge yeah and he doesn't he never raises his voice and he's just has power and by doing the miranda character always vocally measured always steady and yes. quiet mm-hmm. it may it's such a like going back to even what we talked about with adam driver it's a surprising but perfect choice oh yeah and it's so res- it's so restrained it's so and it's so funny because like i used to in the previous episodes i've compared her to like jk simmons in whiplash mm-hmm. but i almost think that the character most comparable to her is a character you brought up already in a weird way the the philip seymour hoffman character in the master where it is like yeah. You know, he's like, you know, she runs, you know, she is like the the, the godhead of this like, you know, weird cult of uh, fashion. But her, she is so much like, it'd be so easy for her to have like a pig fuck scene, like a scene where she just well, screams that's, that's, and like that's throws the That's the difference cop. is that Miranda is not a phony. Lancaster <laughs> Dodd is a phony and he's yeah. trying to cover it up and he's breaking each time. He is an alcoholic with a huge temper problem, but he's trying to be this malevolent cult leader. Yeah, but and she, she, that's she, why the brilliance of like big fuck or that yeah, when they're screaming at each other when oh, they go yeah. to jail and, and that kind of thing. And that's not like saying, yeah, and that's not dissing uh, Hoffman's performance in that film, but it is just like, mm-hmm. it'd be so easy, I think, for someone to read the script and have that same not the alcoholic reading, but like that same reading of like, you know, she is kind of a bit of a phony or full of herself, but yeah. like, no, she like Miranda has full confidence in herself. And, oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Totally. Like a totality, like even when she's not, and it's so interesting, even when she breaks down, it isn't like, she's not breaking down because she's lost faith in herself or she's, be li- it's belying some sort of insecurity. It's because like, it's just, it's because she, it's like the sacrifice she has to make to be it's where a, she is. Yeah, it's but even in the, I mean I think we've we you know I think that scene in Paris where she's briefly is briefly vulnerable. So brief. Yeah. But it's so good and it uh, really does tie the entire movie together. 100%. And, yeah. And the the one of the greatest parts about it is the choice to not have her wear makeup which is a visual thing. It's not really an acting thing. Yeah. But it lets you in ever so slightly because Meryl Streep is 
playing the part so subtly and with such nuance that just these little tiny moves, how her eyes get a little wet during that scene, but she doesn't like, there's no tear, but yeah. you could tell yeah. it's like, you know, it's something we were talking about with Sophie. It's like the multiple things going on at the same time mm. is which she's such a master at of playing like saying, you know, kind of the saying one thing, but feeling another thing. Yeah. Kind of thing. And, and how, how Miranda recovers in that scene. And even in that scene, it's so vulnerable. She, but she still says the word Snoop Dogg in that scene. <laughs> so <laughs> weird. <laughs> it, it actually, it, that's funny you should bring that up. That takes me out of it for some reason. Uh, you have this really vulnerable emotional moment. Obviously, that's not Meryl's fault. Whoever wrote this and the choice of Snoop Dogg is so, <laughs> so comical in the fashion world. They could have picked so many other people and they throw in Snoop Dogg. It, it completely... It almost makes it like comical, laughable for a moment. And I think one of the things that actually this time around, it's like this movie really name drops and like does a lot of cultural references that yeah. put it in a very specific moment and that kind of thing. And I'm not, a, but it's probably necessary within this world, the fashion world, which is, it goes hand in hand with kind of celebrity culture too but it it does you're right nick kind of pull me out of things and like did they just like like who's she on a first name base like Gwyneth did this and salma did this and it's like all right it was it was weird because i think you know we see uh it's it's giselle right giselle yeah. and and we see heidi klum we see people that we're already familiar with in the Except fashion. giselle's not playing giselle but heidi is playing heidi yeah, this is you're very yeah. you're very true. Yeah, Giselle, makes it more complicated. <laughs> yeah, Giselle is playing soon to be Tom Brady's wife. I'm kidding. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. You're you're totally right. Um, but it, again, I'm I'm not gonna harp on the Snoop Dogg thing. It's just a funny choice. They could have they could have mentioned a fashion designer or another, you know, model or someone who was more involved in the industry at that time. But Snoop Dogg was just a really weird, funny they choice. Could have even done a simple like we need to go over the table arrangements because even that choice alone without saying who's at the tables, she's getting back to work. Yeah, And that's what matters yeah. in the moment. It doesn't matter who. Yeah. And you're right. I think it's kind of cheeky. It's kind of a, it is exactly. I think it's you know, definitely it's a funny as Snoop Dogg is there. <laughs> that was definitely a rewrite. Let's put it that way. And the first Snoop Dogg was not a first draft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but we gotta light, we gotta lighten up this dark scene, put a little Snoop in there. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think it takes away necessarily from the power of the scene, giving Miranda that moment, because otherwise, you know, I go back to kind of the feeling real sympathy and real like, because you could see she to maintain what she wants the most, which is this position. And yes, the cult of runway. Yeah, she needs to be ruthless. She cannot even be flexible for a moment mm -hmm. yeah. in that or else because it's clear people are, are working against her yeah and you know to get what she wants which is this magazine that costs an exorbitant amount of money to produce in with her complete vision and have complete power over this industry that they truly believe affects every living person which is pretty megalomaniac Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, megalomaniacal behavior. Um, 
you know, she has to, and especially, you know, to go on top of that, you know, as a woman in that role, which yeah. is a rarity, she has to be probably even more ruthless. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I think Anne Hathaway, I think she's right to almost scold her to like, Oh, you want to have it both ways. You don't know how this world works. And like, if you want to like, it's like, she says, you obviously aren't serious about your career. Which gets back to my existential crisis too. <laughs> well, I, you know, what was um, going back to? I mean, going back to to Stanley Tucci. God, I love I love Stanley and everything that he's in. He literally is. You can toss him in any movie. You toss him in Hunger Games for five minutes, and it's like, oh my god, yes, give me more Tucci. Um, you know, there's that great moment with uh, Anne's character where he kind of reveals to her, "Look, you're not really putting in the effort." Maybe if you actually cared just a little bit, Miranda would see that and maybe she would treat you with a little bit of respect because right now you have not been treating the job with that much respect. You've been just kind of laughing and scoffing at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that's a pretty pivotal moment in the film as far as Anne's transformation changing and not, not just physically changing by dressing more, you know, chic, but actually appreciating and learning about the industry that she's working in and uh, I don't know. I loved. I really do love that moment in in the film. I, I like agree with scene. you. I like that scene a lot too. Yeah, same here. And it's like it's funny because this is like the first time too, where like I think when I first watched this movie, that scene kind of like there was a part of me that kind of annoyed me, and it was like, and I was sort of like, you know, she can dress however she wants, you know, screw you. But it is like, if you're working at like the number one fashion magazine, you should fucking dress like it yeah it is like a real i don't know i, I, I think i just I, I i finally got it this go through although it's so funny that you have this reaction of what you're doing like what am i doing with your my life daniel and like my reaction is like i'm so glad i'm not working there that looks hard <laughs> as hell i don't want to do that <laughs> well, yeah it, it, I, I mean i would like that opening scene where she like lists off all the things that she wants after the calvin klein i was lost I've seen this movie three times in like the last month and a half. The only thing I could remember was the 15, 10, 10 to 15 Calvin Klein skirts. I like, I've done assistant work before and I have a true, like when I have to do like an airline and a rental car for somebody, not even a specific rental car. I am like on the edge of my seat. Like, Oh, it better be like, you know? And yeah, the level of like, when she says, buy me that table from that place on Madison that I saw. I'm like, I'd be fired. Oh yeah. That's that, just that one oh, thing I'm done. Yeah. The, the, uh, the funny thing is, so my, my old roommate whom I watched this movie with, I told you a zillion times, he used to be the assistant to a, uh, a toppity top person at ICM. And I can't name names, but, uh, he used to have horror stories that were definitely on par and level with these Miranda stories. So as, as dramatic and fantastical and theatrical as these, this character feels, these people in the industry do, do very much exist. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, yeah, and I, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's totally real. And it's, it's, I mean, it's scary to think about it. And I, I try to put myself in the shoes of like, just asking someone to do one of those things without feeling so self-conscious and rude yeah like it's just it's so alien oh it's crazy yeah well and, I, I, and i'm yeah. terrible at delegating anything anyway <laughs> and yeah. saying no to anyone about anything oh but, yeah uh, yeah 
That's oh, all. man. I would just, yeah, if I saw Miranda or was in a scenario like that, I, I would just somehow, I would spill ketchup on them within the first five minutes of meeting them and I'd be fired. That'd be, yeah. <laughs> like, somehow I would have ketchup for some reason and I would trip and, like, oh, no, my, my prized ketchup and it would just go all over their beautiful I'll tell clothing. you one mistake Anne Hathaway makes, though. If you want to get real revenge on Miranda, oh, you yeah. don't toss that perfectly good steak in the sink. You eat it yourself. <laughs> yeah but a waste really? yeah you're right you, and then cut to the cut to the scene that didn't make it which is her fishing through broken glass trying to eat a, a bloody a, bloody a, hands <laughs> <laughs> she, gets, she gets glass in her teeth like oh. <laughs> emily walks in andy this is inappropriate behavior yeah and then and then Anne hathaway actually turns into a batman villain <laughs> She becomes Michelle Michelle Pfeiffer's version of Catwoman. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not the Dark Knight. (laughs) Yeah, not the Dark Knight Rises. The one who gets thrown out the window version. It's so funny. Curiosity Um, killed the cat, I guess. Yeah. Going back to Meryl's performance and just performances in general, we need to talk about something. This is why I personally love this movie so much is the glances, the looks. The eyes in this film, just oh, like it is, it is amazing. It is like a masterclass in acting with saying nothing and just using your eyes to do the talking for you. And Meryl is the queen of it, literally, and does a fantastic job in this film with it. They have three of the all-time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just kind of call it right here. Three of the all-time eyes of actresses in this movie between Meryl, Anne Hathaway, and Emily Blunt. They oh, all yeah. have some of the most expressive eyes in cinema history, yeah. and they're all very much using them to their fullest. And I think David, you got to give David Frankel, the director, a lot of credit mm-hmm. in just how he allows the action to go down in this movie and how they set the pace of this movie. And um, yeah, just kind of, he gets really good performances just top to bottom in this movie and yeah he casted he cast pros but emily blunt was an unknown quantity when this movie came out she is i think we already mentioned this maybe i forget after we started but she really is the hidden gem of this of this film uh as far as you were saying she's kind of this no name don't get me wrong the whole cast the ensemble is fantastic Mm -hmm. but emily blunt comes as this amazing i don't know not just comedic relief but a strong character who we really uh we both can love and hate uh and she doesn't play a huge role but but it has such an effect on screen she's also like could have villain. easily been a easily could have been a one-note villain oh Same with miranda but um to a lesser extent the emily character could have just been an obstacle to andy I- but rather becomes kind of a strange ally. Strange I, I, will, I will say the one thing that I do not care for in the film, and I, and I believe me, I love a lot of this film, but the comical aspect of Emily getting hit by a taxi in the middle of the street. <sighs> and, and, and it, you know, you know, I don't like it. I mean, obviously it's, it's silly, but I don't like it because it actually takes all of this guilt and pressure off of Anne's character. Oh, it's Here, so- yeah, that's right. It's an easy way out for her. It's yeah. easy way out, and she doesn't have to deal with the actual consequences because it's not like Emily can now go bored Air France looking like, you know, <laughs> the Invisible Man. You know, she's all, like, bandaged <laughs> up. And so, uh, 
it, it takes all of the, yeah, it takes all that effect and pressure off of Anne's choice to basically, you know, go in a way behind Emily's character mm-hmm. and, and, and do that bad, be that bad person that Miranda's basically trying to throw her get. under the bus. Exactly. Yeah. And, no. and it completely, you know, belittles that moment. Like it just like, it ruins that moment. As, it just makes it again, very comical, fun, happy. And it could have been just more like just girl on girl, like just like, I don't know. I it sounds like we're all, it sounds like we're all striving for, we want the Ken Loach raw and gritty version of this film. Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> Give us- Ken Loach. Let's let's come back and make Devil Wears Prada and get it right this time. Yeah, please, <laughs> Mr. Loach. When you're no, done, I... if you when you're done directing a sequel to The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Yeah, <laughs> another English miserablest film. Um, I honestly though, I I am genuinely surprised, and they have not done a Miranda origin story prequel type movie to this. Yeah. Well, I I am I agree with you. I am shocked because that is it's such an iconic character, uh, and you guys had well, you guys had mentioned earlier about uh, talking about Meryl Streep movies that would be maybe uh, put made into uh, musicals, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and and this I think would make a like a fantastic one. Um, but yes. yeah, shocking with their their massive desire for any level of intellectual property that they can repeat over and over again, that a movie this successful hasn't been, you know, frankly, yeah, like, ca- frankly uh, capitalized on more. Oh yeah. The, the fact that like they, they went to groundhog day and Beetlejuice before this <laughs> very odd. Hey, I actually, so I saw Beetle, so I saw Beetlejuice the musical in New York a year oh. ago. And I fell, I'm, I'm just, maybe because I'm weird, I fell in love with it. It's actually a very, very, it's a great book. And the acting's great. Music is actually very fun and poppy. And uh, it's actually it's actually a very, very good musical. And it's sad that it got um, cut short because of the pandemic. It's, oh, sad for all of, it's, it's sad for all of Broadway, but that's yeah. for another time. Because I think, I don't know about you guys, I'm a total Broadway nerd. Uh, but I definitely love musicals, and so I, I'm 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 really feeling for that community. Uh, right oh, now. totally. You know, it popped in my head. Meryl Streep would have killed it as Beetlejuice. Like, let's see that happen. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, female oh, like, Beetlejuice. Let's see female it. Female Beetlejuice. It, we're uh, ready. I, we're ready, I, America. I definitely love that choice versus I think the more probable, which would be like Amy Schumer Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which sounds like my nightmare, but also sounds like a huge commercial success. You know what? I <laughs> like they, her you know in they would, also, they would also do is, frankly, like a very like PC version of Beetlejuice, which is not the point of Beetlejuice at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, like Beetlejuice would have to learn something, like learn the air of his ways. <laughs> Man, I was a real jerk. <laughs> yeah, I was a real jerk, and I'm sorry. And I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get some treatment for it. <laughs> here, here, here! Your pants back, Otho. I apologize. <laughs> Take the like pants. Beetlejuice Otho. is no longer a troublemaker at all. It just... <laughs> I'm just juice now. I'm just normal juice. I, I mean, yeah, it's like the joy is Beetlejuice is a scumbag. Remember that Hollywood? You when you inevitably do try yeah. and remake this movie with Chris Pratt playing Beetlejuice, you know? And uh, hey, well... make a spinoff about Otho. In, in, well, in the musical, really quick, not to go on a huge tangent, they actually have a song 
called Creepy Old Guy in in the musical because there is a whole scene, if we're not familiar with Beetlejuice, where Beetlejuice is trying to marry Lydia. Yeah. Um, that's like a plot point in the story. And so the, the show, which actually just focused more on Lydia's life and, and her getting over her mother's passing. It's actually, I'm not kidding. It's a very good musical. Definitely listen to the music right now on Spotify after this. Um, it does a good job kind of handling the total creepy, gross, you know, of of Beetlejuice and his character uh, in, in kind of a fun, more like, let's laugh about it way, <laughs> but still calling it out for what it is. When, um, when I was a kid, I remember discovering that Michael Keaton was both Batman and Beetlejuice. Oh my and God. It was such a like, you know, stop the rotation of the earth moment. It was like, <laughs> wow. And I, I remember I told my cousin that and he just... We were like obviously quite young, and he just refused to believe it. He was just like, and we got in a almost like he cried. We got in a big screaming <laughs> match over it. I was like, no, it's true. It really is the same guy. It's Michael Keaton. He's like, it can't be. That's impossible. Batman <laughs> is not Beetlejuice. <laughs> you know? Just melting this child's brain. I, I wonder if future generations who miss those movies from the 80s and 90s. We'll look back at Michael Keaton and be like, oh my God, was he both the founder of McDonald's and Birdman? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, they're just like, they just don't know old Michael Keaton. They're, they're He's just, also they're, they're the centerpiece of the spotlight team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He can't be the head of the Boston Globe and <laughs> a fast Bird food man. magnate and Birdman. <laughs> oh, man. I did hear, oh, sorry, sorry. I did hear that he is reprising his role as Batman <laughs> in some bizarro Batman film coming up in the future at some point. Yeah, oh, interesting. I, because I saw, speaking of intellectual property, the head of Warner Brothers was like, I think people will totally expect multiple Batman storylines in multiple films with different people playing Batman and completely accept it. I'm like, they barely accepted Ben Affleck as the only Batman in that moment. <laughs> yeah, and now you want to put Ben Affleck and Michael Keaton in the same movie. Good luck. And Robert Pattinson. It's too many Batman. Dude, many I told you I forgot that Robert Pattinson. Man, I'm actually, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a huge Robert Pattinson fan. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're, 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 we're Pat heads. Yeah, we're I want to pat that head. Uh, another, another, uh, spawn con uh aside from warrior <laughs> aside from warrior which everyone listening and you guys need to watch again uh good times is one hell of a movie oh man uh, oh yeah and so those are the two movies i recommend we've actively watch. been campaigning for meryl streep to work with the safties on multiple episodes of the show Dude. she will not but we, yeah. we're actively campaigning for that it. That is the collab that I would love to see because the Sadfi brothers are kind of out of control. I mean, I was a very, I was a huge Uncut Gems fan. I know it was kind of polarizing. Oh, I loved um, it. Oh, we're pro Gems. Yeah. I, I'm definitely pro Gems. And then I watched Good Time After and I was like, holy crap, these, these brothers, these guys are very talented filmmakers. So, uh, you know, I can't wait to see what yeah. else they do. Good Time? What about Great Time? Oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's my gene there challenge. There is. Like, go to uh, <laughs> Good Morning America. Let's cut to Patrick. <laughs> Good time. What about great time? Thank Says, you, Al. Thank you, Al. Thanks, Al. Coming up next, Peter McNichol is on the show. Uh, <laughs> but, I, um, I'm trying to think of other moments of Devil Wars product. I, it's such, I mean, other moments from this movie I really enjoyed because every 
I think you already said it, Don. This is just a fun movie. Like every scene is meant to be in there. There's no like bummer scene. There's no like dumb scene. Everything mm-hmm. is kind of memorable and fun and it flows really well. It's got a great pace. And, uh, you know, man, it's, it's just, it is so, it is such a good movie. It really is overall, in my opinion. It's a very fun movie. It's, it's, it's super duper entertaining. And I mean, the other scene I wanted to bring up that I think, along with the scene in Paris where she gets a little vulnerable, I think the other key scene in the movie is the, the cerulean belt. Scene. Yes, that's another um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a real showstopper scene for a variety of reasons. You know, Meryl's complete control of that monologue. Yeah. And also, frankly, again, to put yourself in Miranda's shoes she is explaining properly what they do. Like I, I know I, we talked about this the last time we reviewed the movie, but um, I would have definitely come into that job in the same attitude that Andy has about fashion. Oh yeah. You know, I am a lumpy sweater man (laughs) as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm similar. I don't really care too much about what, 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 what I wear, but you're right in that scene, the way that, uh, the way that Meryl's character articulates fashion and describes it in this new, fresh, eye-opening way for Anne's character is beautiful mm-hmm. and that much more convincing and commanding, as you said. Like she's just full control of the character and the monologue, but also in you're endeared to the character more. You're like, oh, this is not a woman who's just some hack or she's just controlling her means. She knows what she is doing and she knows what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, she, she's, she's good at her. She's really, really good at her job. Exactly. A master of her craft. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to totally villainize unless it's like, you know, some war general or so Dick Cheney and um, yeah. Vice. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but um, Idi Amin. Yeah. Yeah. Idi Amin. Yeah. But I think like, the, the movie does that so well because it does put you like as some like obviously there's a lot of people who watch the movie who are fashion obsessives but for those of us who are not it gives us a real like idea of what the stakes are yeah. in this world and kind of like I walked away from it like with a actually frankly a higher appreciation for what I'm, I'm not going to get into it like it's not <laughs> going to be something I'm going to be into but at the same time I appreciate that you know like it, it is always cool to get in a look at kind of a culture that you might not be all that aware of mm-hmm. and recognize, oh, what kind of goes into it and kind of the excite, you know, the importance of it. Yeah, I mean, all I can say is though, next time I see you, Don, if you're not if you're not if you're not wearing a bowler hat and you don't have a pocket square. Yeah. I did something wrong. You well, did something I, wrong. I, I, I turned 39 this year, so I'm very, very close to Scarface. God, you are, and again, for those that don't know how or what Don looks like or how he looks, Don looks great for his age. Like, I am not just yeah. saying that. When I first met Don, I thought this fool was my age. I thought he was 32. Then when I found out he was in his, I guess at the time, yeah, late 30s, I was like, Yikes. shut up. I was like, you you too you got too much hair you're too good looking you have too few wrinkles get out of here with this yeah. your late 30s well, i i um i was never serious about my career so i don't have wrinkles 
You didn't go through too much stress. Yeah. Yeah, your, hair, your, your hair didn't turn white immediately. I'm only getting that now. Yeah. I'm realizing that I never never worked for Miranda Priestley and never was serious <laughs> about my career to get the wrinkles. Uh, yeah. The, if you, if you actually, there's a, there's a trick. If you watch Devil Wears Prada uh, 50 times or more, you actually age 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I all of a sudden look like Stanley Tucci, who admittedly just turned 60 and looks terrific. As God, well. he's oh man, he looks well. This movie's also from 14 years ago, but Stanley Stanley looks good. You know, dude, that dude's a stud. Dude, a stud. he's a he is a stud. And talking about Tucci, he has that new CNN show coming out where he's traveling Italy and eating bomb ass food. And yeah. I am I am stoked for that program. We we we, we watched Big Night about a month ago, mm. and uh, if you if any of our listeners have not, like, just let Big Night. And the timpano scene in particular wash over you. We've we made a timpano two Ooh. years ago. Oh my here gosh. that took days, but it was one thousand percent worth it. And we were because we were inspired by this movie, and uh, he co-directed it. It's a it's a tooch must see, a tooch Ooh. must see. But uh, but yeah, he is uh, he's extraordinary in the movie, and like we like we've said many many times, and thing that i like so much about him is how comfortable he is on screen like you see anne hathaway in this and there are times where she's she's still kind of feeling her way a -hmm. little bit as a presence he's there oh yeah it's just oh yeah well he's marinating and and on that note him and him and meryl when they're in scenes together i know this is going to sound a little cliche but especially for stanley it is like there's no camera. I mean, it is like yeah. you're almost just seeing him exist in this universe and other people are acting around him. And again, I know that sounds cliche, but it's the truth. He is so comfortable to watch. He makes you as a viewer feel at ease. And uh, that is just, again, another person who is a master at their craft. And uh, he is the king of sass. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. he, he plays so many sassy characters and and excuse me i i, I believe i believe stanley is straight he's a straight man i believe yeah he's uh, actually he, um married to emily blunt's sister wait what he's married to emily blunt's sister mm-hmm. they met at emily blunt's wedding to john krasinski wait shut there's some hot up. goss for you and guess Dude. who else was guess who else get and guess who of course attended Stanley Tucci's marriage to uh, my blunt sister. How yeah. about the reason for our show, Meryl Streep? Yeah, hell yeah, Meryl was at that. Friends in real life. That blows me away because, uh, well, I don't know. That That's just kind of weird, isn't it? Small yeah. world. Oh, yeah. Also, my hot guess, really quickly, and then we'll go back. Oh. Yeah, James Holt, the guy who played Daniel Sanjata, the guy who plays James Holt, he narrated Loose Change. Oh. That was my guess when you alluded. I was like, it ain't Tucci. I don't think it's the mentalist. The guy who was, <laughs> the guy who was like the, the fashion guy that uh, that uh, Meryl Streep puckered his her lips towards. Yeah, another great scene. Yeah, who was also in Rescue Me, a movie, yeah, about, was, a TV show about. Just saw him. He just did a one episode on The Stand, the new Stand miniseries as well. He's on that. Whoa, who do you play in The Stand? It's a one-off thing. He dies. Oh, not, okay. It's not a big spoiler. He's in it, and then he dies. Okay. Toward the top of the thing. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, he... Uh, eh, oh, well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> just, just a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, sorry for taking the. Okay, let's get the let's get the mood back. We're getting the mood back. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think um, the thing I noticed too this time around, the scene where uh, Stanley Tucci's telling Anne Hathaway about his new job and where he kind of gets giggly. Yeah, he does it with his back to the camera for most of the scene, yeah. which would be in most cases uh, somewhat of an error. <laughs> like, we'll just put it that way but it kind of works here he like goes to the window and i'm like but they're really holding on him long as he's explaining how he feels and we don't see his face and i don't know what happened there but it, they get away with it but it's very like i was struck by that this time around that he like that she goes to show how many times we're watching this stuff it's just like but but it, yeah i thought that was interesting that he's so watchable even with his back to the camera Absolutely. I, I, I didn't catch, I mean, again, this is the first time I've watched it in, in quite a bit, even though I've watched it many times. That's a, that's an interesting catch. Yeah. He, again, I, I, he's just, again, one of those actors that has a presence and with his movement and his body um, it, it's, I, I hate to harp on it, but I am a big fan of actors that do use their body to emote as much as they, you know, you use their facial expressions and their voice. Um, it, it, it can bring so much energy and, 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 and it helps to communicate. Uh, again, it can help communicate to the audience, even if your back's turned, even if you can't see the actor's face or hear them, just in the way they gesticulate and their body movements, uh, again, just goes to show someone who's a master of their craft, just goes to show someone who is a very good actor. It's just another tool in their tool toolbox and i mean it's something you know not to go back to improv too much but the folks who can do the the physical work yeah the the painting of the scene the the mime kind of stuff it just adds to their game a hundred percent a hundred percent especially someone who stands still and yells at people (laughs) without moving i know that because i know i don't do that very well and something i'd like to work on but um obviously not in zoom improv but um <laughs> but I, yeah i mean you see it with all the best performers they're just as capable of vocalizing things facial expressions movement it, they've got the whole package 100 percent. yeah man. oh man yeah i think guys i mean we're head toward picking between these two movies and i think this is going to be very interesting because we've it's been a, it's so hard uh, we've had other episodes where it's been very clear how people felt there's been a favor. We've been pretty full of praise for both films, frankly, today. So I'm curious to see how this goes as we move into it. Does anyone have any final Devil Wears Prada thoughts before we move into this deciding moment? Oh, man. I mean, I think it's, I think she's, she does more, like more obvious moves in sophie's but yeah she's doing this is this is a this is a fucking pro at the top of her game in devil wars prada she's got all like reminds me what karina said about doubt it's like she's got all the tricks she knows all the moves and she's utilizing all of them in devil wars prada yeah i mean let's put it this way her miranda character from devil wars prada is iconic Mm -hmm. people people reference it people remember it i'm not again i'm not saying that people don't remember sophie's choice (laughs) or they don't remember the character of sophie but because 
Mm-hmm. It's, her, it's her most iconic part, I think. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you get onto you get onto Merrill's IMDb, and the background is Devil Wears Prada. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is what most people know her for, and I think the 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 best thing about it is Don. You were saying this earlier. In Sophie's Choice, she's kind of asked to do so many things. She's asked to you know spin spin the hula hoop and jump through fire, and there's so many tricks that she's doing what's so beautiful and great about her character in Devil Wars Prada is that it's kind of, it's, it's refined and it's isolated into this one thing. And she's kind of just doing one thing, but she's doing it so effing well. You are completely immersed. I don't know. You, you do forget that she's acting in a lot of ways. Again, she's just like, you're just, this is her. She's Miranda. Whereas with Sophie's Choice, you're very much seeing the acting happening. You're seeing that process happen. Uh, yeah, I yeah, you're right. The acting in Devil Wears Prada feels almost invisible. Yeah, but she's also elevating and creating a three-dimensional character that almost anyone else's hands would be cartoonish, a cartoonish villain. Oh yeah, <laughs> like a like a yeah yeah. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's even like I think we talked about it last time that episode of The Office where Michael Scott is watching. Devil Wears Prada in pieces. <laughs> he keeps going and giving Armani on the phone. Then he comes in at the end. He's very apologetic. He's, Turns out uh, she was the bad guy. <laughs> and it's, but it is. It's like it would have been obvious. Like I don't think. I think it's so much more complicated than a movie this slick and purely entertaining almost has the right to be. Yeah. You know, this movie's so like she got nominated for best actress. For, <laughs> yeah, for this movie. Yeah. Which which is a slick entertainment. Yeah. But it's that, crazy that she got nominated be- for for best act yeah, and it's like she got nominated for best actress, not supporting actress. You oh, really? For Devil Wars Prada was best or, wait, or was it supporting? Lead. She was lead. That's so yeah, that's wild. Let's well, I bet I bet she could have won if she had gotten if it would have been I, supporting. I, I, I forget what uh I know this kind of sounds silly. What did Devil Wears Prada go up against in two thousand six or seven? I oh, we should... I can look it up. Yeah, Patrick, uh our yeah, tech. Look it up. Our... And another thing that tech, I wanted look it up. <laughs> tech, I wanted to bring it up earlier just because I think it is something to note. When you have a movie like Sophie's Choice where not everyone knows who Meryl Streep is, right? She mm-hmm. has to kind of almost earn your adoration right you 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 don't know who she is yet these new up-and-comer you know these these actors actresses but a movie like Devil Wars Prada where you have decades of of craft and work behind you and your name is the first build name and just the way that your entrance into the film is shot yeah her entrance is incredible it's incredible it's built up it's like oh my god Miranda's on her way and there's just shots of her feet and then shots of her her coat and and that model getting off the elevator yeah so so good yeah so good there's just all this buildup for her character that is Let's be honest. It goes beyond Miranda. It's a buildup for Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what is truly amazing about this is that this movie, she was, I believe, like 57, 58, 59, somewhere mm-hmm. around there when this right. movie came out. Uh, it brought her an entire new cinematic life, an entire new set of fans. Yeah. Basically. 100%. That, and she's been riding this wave since this movie pretty much since. And to become a bankable 
because before this she was just pretty known as being a very like oh she's great she's the best actor yeah but it wasn't that she was like this bankable pay her 10 million dollars to be in the movie because it's going to be a hit movie star yeah. yeah at that level like like a commercial guarantee that she kind of became like movies that followed like it's complicated or yeah. Mamma mia like these are movies that were made because she agreed to be in them that they knew that they could make money off of which is wild yeah. oh yeah and it's incredible it's one of a kind you know, unfortunately, due to the inherent misogyny, obviously, in the entertainment industry, that a woman in her late 50s, she's the only one probably ever who's became a big, who they've been given the chance to be a bankable star Yeah. at that age. And obviously, her contemporaries, people like Diane Keaton, people like Jessica Lange, oh, and God. so forth, all should have, should, should have, I mean, Diane Keaton proved it and something's got to give, which God, is a that wonderful movie. movie. That movie was so good. I love, I love Diane Keaton and you were saying Jessica Lange. Oh my God. I sorry to Jessica Lange and Big Fish. Ooh. Fantastic. And also Jessica Lange, and I sorry to 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 uh what do you call it? Uh tangent or whatever. Not tangent, but go over to TV. But Jessica oh, yeah. Lang, but Jessica Lange in the American horror uh, American horror story mm-hmm. series, like the all those uh series and uh, have she's been she's been great in that. Oh my god, I love a Huge Jessica Lang fan. Huge there's, Jessica there's a wealth of talent out there that's being frankly unutilized yeah. in interesting films that, and uh, fr- frankly, uh, at interesting time in a person's life that is worth portraying on film when you're, say, in your 60s or 70s, you know, fe- female or male. Yeah. It's an interesting time that is not shown too much because, you know, we're being dominated by the world of Marvel where Robert Downey Jr. is almost 60, but looks younger than me. Speaking of that, you know, it's like, yeah, but Robert Downey Jr. has had so much plastic surgery. Yeah. Also, you know, he stopped doing, he stopped doing drugs. Yeah. That helped a little bit. But it it is extremely funny in the second Avengers movie. He's like, I'm just about to become a new dad. You're like 58 years old, man. (laughs) Yeah. No, that, that guy, You've no, had two went... colonoscopies at this point, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> at least, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait. So the Oscars, by the way, so it was uh, 2006. Yeah. It was uh, Penelope Cruz for Volver. Oh, yeah. Uh, Judy, That's good. Judy Dench for Notes on a Scandal. Uh, yeah. Meryl Streep for Devil Wears Prada, obviously. Uh, yeah. Kate Winslet for Little Children. I like that movie. Oh, yeah. She's yeah, good. And then uh, Helen Mirren won for The Queen. Oh, that's why. Yeah, because, of course. Oh, yeah, my God. Like, yeah. That, that movie was. Oh, talk about. Oh, it's so funny. We're talking about older women. Uh, 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 Helen Mirren, obviously, also yeah. a master of her craft, and the Queen was excellent. I do remember seeing that movie and falling in love with that movie. And really brought her another uh, kind of second wind audience. Yes. You know, how, got- how, however, I saw uh, as as I talked about earlier, I believe I'm a huge horror movie fan. I watched Winchester. Oh, yeah, and she. First of all, not a good movie, unfortunately. Wait, wait, wasted premise because there's a good movie in the Winchester. A hundred percent. My 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 mom and I took a, a tour of the Winchester house years ago, and there's an amazing premise, an amazing story there, and a lot of truth too. Funny enough, uh, rooted in this in this the backstory, which is very fascinating, interesting. It's not a well done movie. However, the silver lining is. Helen Mirren, no joke, is fantastic in that movie. She elevates 
every every scene that she's in in what would otherwise be a very like C level horror movie. The power um, of stars. The power. The real, of stars. No, the power of stars and power of just talent. Raw, yeah. raw talent. Uh, so kudos to Helen Mirren for it's weird. She's even in that movie. Yeah. I don't know why she signed on. Maybe she also has, you know, the alimony. I'm kidding. But yeah, yeah. yeah maybe she needs to buy another pyramid. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. I don't know why she needed that to do the job. Clearly, she saw something in the script that she really liked. But I will give her kudos. Uh, she she elevated uh, poor material. You know, also, the, uh, the other thing to take just purely into account is no one goes into a movie thinking it's going to be a bad movie. Like yeah. people are, they're too hard to make. For you to say this, this sucks. Let's just do it. You know, I think most people have, especially at a movie that's actually going to get released in the theaters, the intentions are good to make a good movie. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes things just don't work out. <laughs> uh, yeah, usually when 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 new writers get brought on or a new director gets brought on mid production, has a tendency to uh, throw off the end result. Yeah. I mean, when you're getting into it, you're like, cool, Winchester has, that's a great idea. We got Helen Mirren. Isn't Jason Clark in that too? Yeah, he is. I believe, yeah, he, I believe he's good name. too. It's like, he, he is also good in it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, they, yeah, you have the best intentions and sometimes things just don't work out. But, oh, uh, well. but I guess, Patrick, were you going to say something? Oh, no. I was just going to say that uh, The Queen was also directed by Stephen Frears, who directed Florence Foster Jenkins. Oh, a fan favorite of oh. Florence Foster Jenkins fame. Yes. Oh, man. That's that's the underdog. That is definitely our the, Cinder- the dark Cinderella horse. story going up next very week against the Iron Lady. So how many movies do you guys uh, forgive me for not knowing how many how many street films have we whittled it down to? What do you well, got? Left? This is this is the final four. Oh, this is wow. This is the final four. And you started with 16. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my final, goodness. Our final four. Just to recap for everybody. Sophie's Choice, The Devil Wears Prada. Florence Foster Jenkins and the Iron Lady. That's a lot of heavy hitters. It that it is. I mean, and I think it could go any way. I mean, we, I think we're frankly right now. Some of us, I'll speak for myself, are putting off having to make a pick here. <laughs> are you, are you, are you, are you're, you're putting off having to choose. Yeah, because yeah. I am quite. I am, you know, full disclosure, quite torn. So why don't we jump into everyone's favorite segment, the Stanley Tucci supporting player of the week just to kind of get us going here patrick do you have who are you giving to the tucci award you know what? there's so many contenders uh, so many good tuches in this they're all tuches uh you got a good hey Kevin. you're all tuches you're all tuches tonight <laughs> uh yeah. you, you got a klein tuch you got a tuchy tuch they're all sorts of tuches but you know what i'm gonna give a little a special tuch uh to my boy john rothman uh, who has cameos in both films. He's the nebbish, uh, nebbish librarian in Sophie's Choice. And he's the guy wow. who also runs the, he's the guy who hires uh, Anne Hathaway in the end of Devil Wears Prada. And he's great in both those little, ca- I love him in those little bit parts. He's such wait, a good. Did you manage to find someone who was, wait. Outside of Meryl Streep. <laughs> oh. did, you, did, you, did, you, did you just uh, Kevin Bacon this? Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so like he's like John Rothman, who like has it's so funny too because it's like the start of Tucci of uh, Streep being amazing, and then like the beginning of the second era of Streep, and he's like Man. he's like the little he's the little like good luck charm. He's like Streep's Streep's little John Ratzenberger. So like 
Yeah, I got to give it to my boy, John Rothman. He gets this a two. This is why you're one of the best podcast hosts in the business, Patrick. You, you're bringing out wild card after wild card. That was a great choice. I did not know that. Good, good deep cut. <laughs> I, I'm literally IMDB in this guy right now. Just he's to see so good. He's also great in uh, One Mississippi, like Tig Notaro's two mm. season show on Amazon, which is like an a decent like it's a great it's a good show but as him as the father he's so good as the dad and that everyone just give 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 john rothman some love he also plays a uh he also plays a library administrator in ghostbusters oh Oh my god he's the library administrator (laughs) (laughs) wow it's the Uh, same fucking dude oh my god it's so maybe he's a ghost maybe he's the ghost of the librarian and Sophie's choice. Uh, I am looking at his acting credits, and this dude has been in hella films. Like, like a lot. He has a wait on IMDb. This guy has 134 acting credits. That's a that's, that's a, a lot. That's MC Gainey level acting credits, dude. And that includes you know reoccurring roles on TV shows. That's that's crazy. Hey, when you're good, you're good. You work. I mean, it's yeah. true. Hey. If you're if you're working, then you're good. Yeah, yeah. Good for he's him. like a t- he's a type too. He just you know yeah. he's like yeah. Clearly. Well, yeah. Another guy like those guys who like kind of look like they yeah some level of they could be an administrator, they can be a lawyer, they could oh, yeah. like be an upper level cop or military person. Like they um just at a level basically like a white guy between the ages of 55 to 75 yeah just gets work <laughs> a bruce greenwood type yeah just well, yeah. always like some level of bureaucrat job you, you yeah you you uh yeah we get them they're good they got it yeah that's, any well, anyone who's so anyone who started in the movie 13 days yeah 13 days <laughs> or like um is in the room that they call when they say get me the president on the phone and it's like <laughs> one of the sec one of the cabinet members who's at the table who gets two lines oh yeah it's like Mr. He was- I- you can't bomb alcatraz <laughs> uh, he, he did play senator sheldon whitehouse in the report a 2019 film too oh so i liked i liked the report the adam I- driver Ooh. Oh really? Oh, I it's, okay. Yeah. I, I'm now reminded of what this movie was. Yeah, it was I, dry, oh, but it was good. Um, I'm gonna jump in here, and I got a. I have another wild card for my Stanley Tucci Award this week, and I'm gonna give it to Stingo himself, McNichol. We've we've ragged on you. You've you've Stingo has came come up on every episode of our show, I believe. Yeah. But I admired your charms this week. What you did in a role that is not as flashy as Nathan, nor so obviously Sophie. You, you are, you were a glue man. You brought some intangibles. You carried that inexplicably large pallet of spam like a pro. Oh my, <laughs> Yeah, that was so slapsticky for a movie about the Holocaust. What the hell? And it's like I guess like just assume that that's all he's eating during this entire time. They were just a few years off from the Monty Python uh, spam <laughs> sketch. Yeah. So it was probably still pretty fresh in the minds of like Alan Pakula's like, you know, that was really funny. 
I think we got yeah. easy kind of. We need a lighter moment. This is a heavy movie, so let's strap four <laughs> cases of spam to Peter McNichol's back. Yeah, that this, was so weird. This, this stark drama sure does need a Graham Chapman element. Yeah, yeah. John Cleese is like, oh, I demand royalties for that one. <laughs> Uh, um, uh, Eric Idle definitely would. Yeah. Oh yeah, he would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I thought I think he's I think he's good. He's obviously doesn't have like the magnetism that Streep and Klein have. But I think we may have been a little hard on our little Stingo the last couple times we watched this movie. So, and especially who knows how this is gonna go if we are saying goodbye to Stingo today. We want to give him. I want to give him a little love. Oh my god. Oh man. Nick, uh who do you got for your Tucci of the week? Yeah, Tucci of the week. Um and so I Tucci. uh the Tucci of the week, the the, <laughs> the Tucci of the week. Uh and so I just I unfortunately have to choose a supporting role from either film <laughs> that yeah. I really enjoyed. Um yeah, uh because I have not seen Sophie's Choice in so long, uh and I was kind of really blown away, uh I I have to give it to Kevin Klein. I guess. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I really truly uh, thought he was. Uh, very, I mean, just I don't know, magnificent in the role. Again, like I had said earlier, he's just electrifying on screen. Captures your attention. You never want to look away. He's in full command. He's in command of his voice, of his body. He just is very. He's just kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. So. It's good actually on, quite, good on quite surprising he wasn't nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, I, it's actually kind of criminal. The fact mm-hmm. when I when I looked this up before doing this and I saw that he was not, uh, now after the fact, thinking about it is is, is kind of, he got robbed like 100%. Mm-hmm. He still, play, I mean, he played a very, very complicated character. Again, as more is revealed as the, as the movie goes on, um, he, he was really magnificent in it. And, and him, you know, and, and to not to harp on it, but he and Meryl's chemistry in the film really just carried the film. I mean, it made those scenes. Uh, yeah. So uh, kudos to him. I think too, he his their opening scene. He's both physically and highly verbally abusive. Horrible. In yeah. the first moment you see him, which for almost any other actor, that would turn you on the character. Oh yeah, immediately the rest of the time watching Absolutely. the film, yeah, and he makes it so complicated. He kind of almost like, you know, and that's oddly enough like Stingo's first impression of him, and then Stingo, like us, kind of ends up in this like enthralled by him, but knows he's trouble. It's just um, yeah, similar to what Meryl does as Sophie. It works on a lot of levels. Fatal yeah. was it? Fatal beauty? What was that term he used? Like a fatal. Uh... Or he was fatally beautiful. I can't remember exactly the line, but like, yeah. Yeah, like, and then completely like surface level. Both he and Meryl Streep are fatally beautiful. It's so oh. his choice. Like they, they, oh, look, yeah. they look, they're at their youthful peaks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kevin Klein looks great. <laughs> yeah, dude, Kevin Klein's a damn snack. Pull, pulling that mustache off in a big way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, watch, yeah. Out, watch out, John Rothman. Yeah, watch out, John Rothman. <laughs> All right, so I guess we are at the moment of truth here, gentlemen. Oh, uh, this is going to be interesting, and so unfortunately, hard. it is based upon how we've uh, designed it. Patrick, you are up first. Oh, God. Okay, so 
This is insanely difficult for me. And uh, if you're like a first time listener, which you're probably not, uh, I've always- What a a time to jump in. Oh, seriously, what a time. Yeah, start off, you hear me saying a weird Kierkegaard quote. Uh, (laughs) What a great introduction to the podcast, to the pod. But uh, I've always voted against Sophie's Choice and I've always voted for Devil Wears Prada. And it's so funny because on one hand, I've like enjoyed both of these films more than I've ever had, probably. Or like I saw new things that I hadn't seen. Uh, more so, I would say, with uh, Sophie's Choice. And I think this is the first time that I've watched Sophie's Choice and I was like, oh yeah, Meryl Streep is literally doing everything. And while it is technical, it is also coming from a real place. And it was the first time I've connected to like, you know, the really, cause I, I feel like I've had a hard time connecting to some of the more intense scenes in this movie. And I don't know if it was because like, maybe it's cause I was watching it on this big TV screen. Maybe I shouldn't watch movies on my dingy ass monitor or whatever. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe that's part of it. It's something, I don't know, but like, uh, it just touched me in a way. But then like, we've had this like really nice Devil Wears Prada discussion and like, Oh God. It's just a oh, fuck. Like it is like her best, I will say unequivocally, it is her best role. Like it probably is the best Meryl Streep role. Like it is like that character is so memorable and will be like in the, like, it'll be, remember, it, I don't know. Like it'll stand the test of time in a way. I don't even think Sophie's choice could. Um, God, but then that being said, I'm sorry, sorry. you gotta go with like, I have to go with my heart, I have to go with my gut, and I have to go with like what I think is the best performance, and I can't believe I'm doing this, I'm gonna say Sophie's Choice, shit. (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying it, but I am Sophie's Choice. I think an alternate title for our show could be That Being Said. Yeah. I think we oh, say yeah. it. I think both of us say it every single time we're in this segment. Oh. So that being said, <laughs> um, Patrick, so. you make a lot of really, they are, I, I second pretty much everything you said there. Yeah. Like, I think Devil Wears Prada is her. <laughs> not to get too um, morbid here, but it's kind of the obituary part. Sorry. It's the first thing that's going to get mentioned. Yeah. It, outside of her multiple Academy Award nominations, it's the first like specific thing. I think it's her most mm-hmm. iconic part. But I also think if we're looking at this based on performance and character, Devil Wears Prada is kind of the start of kind of the idea of Meryl Streep taking on these parts where Sophie's choice is a complete disappearance. Mm. Like when you watch it, I don't think of Meryl Streep. I think of Sophie. Yeah. And I think when I watch Devil Wears Prada for as full and as we talked about as three dimensional as Miranda is and for how much she brings out in Miranda, there is this element of like, Oh, Meryl Streep, you did it again. That's that I kind of feel in it, but it's very tough because she brings 
a full life to Miranda. And we, I don't think there's any way the character of Sophie could be a one dimensional character. It's just, there's just too, it's just too rich. There's just too many complications in her story in the same way that Miranda could easily have been like a one dimensional cartoon character villain. Um, but I, I feel that, boy, that's a long pause. <laughs> um, I'm going to give it to Sophie's choice as well. I feel that there's just, this is a extraordinarily complicated character that she brings so many different colors to that, you know, and a lot of that, I think you can thank kind of William Styron for creating the character and that kind of thing. But I think that bring, she brings it to life in so many different ways. And you feel it like now having watched this movie in a sense on a loop, you're kind of watching it in this circle each time out. And it just is so amazing to see her in those opening scenes, the Coney Island scenes, the initial scenes where she meets Nathan and to watch her journey and the way Meryl takes the journey it's just an unbelievable rich full thing and while devil wears prod is more fun more iconic and just as it and quite and quite interesting and quite elevated i just think sophie's choice is the full package it's hard. It was hard because I really like Devil Wears Prada. And I'll be real, it's going to be easier to watch that again than it will be to watch because we're going to have to watch, although like, I'll, maybe I'm, you know, what I want to do now is now I want to read the William Styron book, so I might I might have to get myself a copy of that bad boy. You guys might have to watch The Iron Lady and Sophie's Choice in the same week again. Ooh, maybe. Or We'll see. You know, Florence Foster, Thunderdog. Which, frankly, may have been our destiny. Oh, 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 oh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nick, your final thoughts. Final thoughts. Um, uh, Well, I mean, you, so it's, well, I mean, the thing is, you two have both voted. So it's for sure going to be Sophie's choice. Yeah, yes. but we I, we'd like to hear kind of oh, what, totally. you, what, it, what, you, oh, what your pick is. Uh, no, 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 for sure, for sure. Um, well, uh, you, you guys have done a very good job of of making your um, claims and fights for each picture for each role. Uh, yes, I agree that the her characters Miranda and Devil Wars Prada will be the more memorable one, the one that people, that is more quotable, that is more people want to dress up for Halloween, is more marketable, you know what I mean? No one's dressing up yeah. as Sophie for Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's hope not. <laughs> let's, hope, let's hope not. Uh, but uh, having watched Devil Wars Prada so many times, Don made a good point. When you're watching that film, and I agree, and I said it earlier, you're watching Meryl Streep. You're watching the celebrity of Meryl Streep. I think, again, that opening sequence, I think explains it all. It's not your introduction to Miranda. It's your introduction to Meryl Streep. And if anything, it's just years and years of work and craft that is being now rewarded by this big entrance. Um, Sophie's Choice, having now only seen it for my second time, and I plan to rewatch it more times in my life later so I can catch up on more of the nuances that you guys have 
had the pleasure of picking up on. Uh, it's undeniable the, 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 the complexity of the character and the full amount of work, sheer work that got put into that role, um, just coming from a, an actor's perspective, another actor's perspective, um, you, it's undeniable uh, how much of herself she gave to it and just how emotionally grueling uh, that must have been. Uh, so you, you just, uh, you know, this was very challenging even for me because of course the movie I want to watch again is Devil Wears Prada, right? You know, yeah. I don't think, again, as we have said many times, Sophie's Choice is not the um, 11 o'clock at night uh, lull you to sleep movie. Um, it is not your Shrek movie no. that, that you that you that you put on for some roles. Yeah, you know, there's no animated donkey. In no, there's there's no, choice, unfortunately. There's, there's no Smash Mouth to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I don't sing. So, I don't sing. I'm a believer at the end. The whole yeah. cast of Sophie's Choice. Exactly. Oh, I, I mean, if, only, I gonna, if only. Yeah, if only. you knew I was going to end this podcast with some Shrek. So oh, hell yeah, it's for you, Patrick. But again, um, you know, it, again, it, it, the, the work speaks for itself. She's an, clearly she's an amazing actress. And so I too will give it to Sophie's Choice, clearly, just because, um, again, it's, it's uh, as a viewer, you're left. Um, it, for me, it's how I'm left feeling when, when, I, when I turn off the film or when I'm leaving the theater. It's, it's how is it going to leave me feeling? What do I carry with myself? Am I changed? How did it affect me? And uh, it's just, um, it's amazing. And I feel bad that you guys have to watch it again. Um, <laughs> not because of me, just because it's Meryl being the best. But uh, yeah, what can I say? It's just fantastic. Fantastic. It's the juggernaut of the tournament. I mean, it really... It really is and it's it's odd you want to be i think we went into this hoping kind of in a sense that there'd be some sort of twist some sort of film that was actually the um the right thing <laughs> like they, they got it wrong <laughs> yeah like we're discovering some sort of um you know oh my goodness it turns out you know Still of the night is the correct Meryl Streep movie or something like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, you know, I think the only thing, yeah, but it's, it is, we're kind of going chalk, but at the same time, Sophie's Choice for being a strange movie, being an oddly paced movie, it's a pretty undeniable, her work in it is pretty undeniable. Yeah, so and it we'll is. See, it, we'll see what happens. But welcome to the finals, Sophie's yeah. Choice. Welcome to the finals. Do we get another another NBA reference? <laughs> well, um, you know, one shining moment is you know it's uh, from the NCAA tournament. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll play that at the end of this thing. Who knows? But um, to meet the winner of Florence Foster Jenkins and the Iron Lady, you know, will it be her two? those dang best actress trophies going up against each other. Sophie's Choice, Iron Lady, or is it going to be the underdog, Florence Foster Jenkins, mm. with our great friends, Hugh and Bazinga? Oh, man. You know, little Bazinga. Come on, Little Bazinga. Bazinga uh, Cosme McMoon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know we'll see. Mr. We'll see. Feather. The Feather Man. But, uh, you know, 
congratulations again to Sophie's Choice and congratulations to us. You get to watch it four fucking times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What 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 philosopher will I quote next episode? Yeah. How broken will my brain be next how, week? Tune in. How will I try and relate it to failures from my early twenties? <laughs> Oh, the audience is on the edge of their seats. Um, But let's move on to this week's game. Uh, This is a game that Patrick and I have been wanting to do. We're waiting for the right guest. And he just said, he's a big Broadway head. (laughs) So he's the right guy for the right. This we're, we're doing, um, what did we, what we do? Streepsicle. 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 That's That's our (laughs) pun this week. Um, Meryl Streep's been in a lot of movies. She's sung in a hell of a lot of movies Mm -hmm. we've discovered. Uh, we had an entire musical category for her, but guess what? Not all of her movies have translated to the Broadway stage. Mm. We're going to change that today. We're going to pick. We're just going to pick one of her films that has not been translated, and make our case as to why we'd like to see that on stage. Patrick, would you like to go first? Oh yes. Uh, let me see. So, uh, you know, there's some here that are kind of like. I would like, but they're not really streepy films. Like, I think a Lebanese Sickets series of unfortunate events, like, that's a movie. It's shocking that isn't already a Broadway it, it, musical. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And it's a movie, like, I like the aesthetic of it. It's not a good movie, but I think that'd be a fun aesthetic that would translate well into a Broadway setting. But, you know, also not like a, not streep heavy. Like, she's in it in the very end, I think. Uh, hmm. I would actually think Hmm. I kind of want to see Hope Springs, the musical. I think that would actually, and so it's also directed by David Frankel. Of Devil Wears Prada fan. Yeah. The late, great Devil Wears Prada. Oh, man. But if you can get an actor that would could have like the deadpan of a Tommy Lee Jones, but still could like be a Broadway singer. Like, I don't know who could, maybe like Michael Cerverus or whatever. I'm trying what to think of like. the guy who plays Dexter? Michael C. Hall. Oh He's my so God. Good. Yeah. Oh man. He, cause he dances too. Like Gamer, one of the worst movies ever made. I hate that movie with my life, but his dance in Gamer. Melvin Taylor. Yeah. God damn. He, so he can, he has the, he has the. He was in um, the David Bowie musical Lazarus. Ooh. Yeah. That, that came out around the same time as Bowie's last album, Black Star. That's so and, crazy. And, and the, 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 that show that he did with the, uh, the young female actress, she played Lydia in Beetlejuice, the musical. So, Sophia, Sophia Ann Caruso, who okay. is very talented, but she plays alongside Michael C. Hall in that Lazarus show, and they're fantastic together. Okay, so then get her in the street role, is. him in the Tommy Lee Jones, and then, uh, you know what, you just get Steve Carell to reprise his yeah. famous yeah. role as Dr. Bernard Bernie Feld. <laughs> The famous, the famous character we all know and love. Well, a lot uh, of people, you know, when they look at Devil Wears Prada, they say that's an iconic role. Yeah. yeah. Street, but I'd say the same people say the same about Steve Carell and Hope Springs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> those are the number two uh, villain, the number one and number two villains in the AFI top villains. Number two, Bernie Feld. Number one, Miranda. Obviously, uh, oddly enough, also number one and two, but flipped for heroes. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought? They're both uh, they're both sides of the same coin, my friend. So that's like, and I think that's like that would be a fun movie to see. As so I, I, I like it, I like yep. it a lot. 
All right. So I my my pick is pretty 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 quick thought. It's the River Wild. You get a lot of special effects on stage. You get a lot of action. It's a very, like, it it gets butts in the seats of all sides. You know, you want to see a big thriller. You want to see some musical numbers. And you can already picture it. It's like, dun, 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 the river wild, dun, 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 (laughs) the river wild, dun, dun. Those rapids. Flowing and flowing and flowing. Those rapids, the flowing, gonna flowing, get flowing. gonna get you. We already see um, Kevin Bacon and John C. Riley. Let's let's bring him back. Let's, Kevin Bacon's uh, in the Bacon Brothers. He's in a band. We know he can sing. John yeah. C. Riley was in Chicago. We know oh, he yeah. can he can do some soft shoe. So um, I'm sold. Oh yeah, I'm and sold I... on the River Wild. I think I I want to see a big Spider-Man turn off the dark. Yes, like, that's what I was imagining. Like a level of effects and that kind yes. of thing. Oh like, we're they're gonna they're gonna be six months behind because of all the water issues that they're gonna have to have on stage, like to build <laughs> rapids on the stage. This is like and, a Ju- a Julie Tamer joint. Yes. Oh my god. When, yeah, hire her to direct it. Obviously. Yeah, you two I, doing obviously. the soundtrack. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you two, or how about this? How about this? The Foo Fighters. Oh, Big yeah. rock <laughs> soundtrack. They're going to do all the songs. Dave Grohl saw something from his childhood in this story that he wanted to express. I think. Oh, boy. Somebody call um, Scott Rudin. Let's get him on yeah. as producer. Oh, oh my God. Go. He produces everything. <laughs> I just like the idea of just like they're, they're doing like they're really like they're rowing to, to best of you. Mm-hmm. Skip in the pass, the pass. If we, we want to switch it up, actually, I think I think the the proper person to write the lyrics and to this is Stephen Sondheim. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh god. Uh, you know, kind of because he, he can kind of capture the plot of the River Wild in song quite well, which is what really what's necessary here. You know, to catch you up, it's about a family on a river who get kidnapped by sociopaths and have to go down the river with them. So I think. Uh, Sondheim, that would really appeal to his sensibilities. Too. <laughs> uh, I am not a big Sondheim, Sondheim fan at Me neither. All. Me neither. Like Into the Woods has got to be, a, I did it in sixth grade. It's got to be one of my least favorite musicals um, for so many reasons. <laughs> there was such a, um, last, last year in films, what was there, two or three? Sondheim references in films last year because the marriage story obviously and then yeah there was a joke in um knives out oh there was well Uh, i think there was a third as well there was like a bunch of filmmakers were like oh yeah we're big fans (laughs) so but yeah river wild the musical and we have got hope springs the musical these are left field but you know i'm i think big box office hits what do you got nick yeah, uh, I'll keep it short. I don't want to take up too much time here. I'm kind of, I'm kind of torn. Well, one, as I told you guys, I haven't actually seen a lot of street films. And again, shame on me. If anything, this is going to uh, impress me to uh, watch more Meryl. Um, the movie that I think that would translate into the most doll hairs on Broadway would, unfor- I mean, it is what it is. It's Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. That Devil Wears Prada, the musical, is would make so much money mm-hmm. and is such a bankable idea and concept. My 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 businessy mind cannot uh, 
unhear that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, it's iconic. It's fun. It's, it's a world, a fashion world. It already takes, pla- ha- already takes place in New York. Um, we all know that New York loves musicals about New York. Oh, yeah. So uh, 42nd Street, West Side Story, uh, In the Heights. I mean, like half of the musicals take place in New York. Um, Rent. Oh, God. Rent. So good. Um, but the musical that I would actually like to see, uh, I think, would be Little Women. Mm. And it's be- for a lot of reasons. One, I totally went on my Bridgerton uh, bender. If you guys have not watched Bridgerton yet on Netflix, highly mm-hmm. recommend uh, Shonda Rhimes show. They do like a modernization of the the classic, like whatever, old timey, whatever. Jane Austen kind of stuff. Jane Austen, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And then there was this clips of... Uh, the musical online from TikTok, a TikTok girl that started doing Bridgerton the musical on TikTok. And I don't know if you guys also heard of Ratatouille the musical on TikTok, but that was also fantastic. And it kind of got me just in this mindset of like what would look the best on stage and just people in those costumes and the set design and the scenery. And obviously the story of Little Women uh, is, is, is deep enough and rich enough that you're going to have all these great characters with their songs and melodies and, and stories playing out. And so uh, I just think that would actually be, translate the best to musical and be the most fun. Um, but Devil Wears Prada, no doubt, would make oodles of money. <laughs> <laughs> it also could maybe help uh, make New York Fashion Week hot again. Exactly. Oh, so many like, yeah, uh, uh, sponsor type mix-ins into the show they would update snoop dog to like whoever the current person is <laughs> zendaya zendaya needs to sit oh yeah next to me. Uh, zendaya needs to sit next to me yeah yeah, yeah. exactly oh the, yeah it, it, every, every week they could change it it could be like one of those like what's oh, it the like aladdin that. in I, disneyland um, right? at oh hello on broadway they had a guest that they gave the tuna sandwich to oh my god every <laughs> week <laughs> Yeah. or every show a different guest and so yeah just every week yeah just like whoever's in the news like you know for some reason al roker's in the news it'll be like oh mm-hmm. you know gotta you know sit next to al roker and then everyone just you know gets their little or uh, gene patrick shallot yeah gene patrick yeah gene patrick <laughs> shallot himself that's me gene patrick shallot gene patrick shallot <laughs> I, I i keep my, i turn my real name into my middle name <laughs> <laughs> And then get rid of my surname and then I die. <laughs> I love this. Uh, that's, I love it. So I'm, I am going to do that. <laughs> you try to do a Gene Shallot thing? Yeah, I'm going to shallot it. I'm going to shallot it. That'll be my, that's me in 10 years. I'm going to shallot it, folks. It's happening. Oh, oh I, I would love to see you become kind of like a cartoonish television movie critic. Like, I keep thinking about also Bob Odenkirk's character on Mr. Show, FF Woody Cook. Uh, the crime crime stopper slash ice cream salesman (laughs) shake the crime stick uh i like Uh, i like i was thinking yeah okay we've taken it far nick you came up with two excellent shows that would actually make money patrick and i came up with two (laughs) yeah meryl street fever dream insano (laughs) choices once again yeah uh nick is there anything you'd like to plug on your way out of here Anything I'd like to plug? Oh no, not at all. I, okay. I, no, I'm, I'm good. I just want to say thank you to you guys. This oh, has been thank you such a, such a fun experience. Like I said, this is my first podcast. I feel 
so lucky I got to do this. With he came off close, as a pro. With two oh, yeah. close friends. And I got to, uh, you know, I appreciate you involving me in something that I, I do really love and enjoy. I love movies. And God bless our queen, Meryl Streep. Yeah. <laughs> what man about town. You know, one of the best. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, oh, thank before you. We, before we head out, though, we just, you know, thank Nick. But Patrick, is there um, anyone else you'd like to thank? Oh, man. Uh Okay, I want to thank, I want to thank that little uh, friend of yours from the '80s that had his brain destroyed by discovering Michael Keaton played both Beetlejuice and <laughs> Batman. That is my such cousin. A, big ups. Uh, big ups to D- Don's cousin. Oh, man, that's so funny to me. That is like the type of thing that would destroy an eight-year-old's brain. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like how can Batman be Beetlejuice? Oh man, that is so. I love it. Uh, I, I have to thank uh, Stephen Frears. Mm. Nice to see you. A little queen nod. Uh, uh, cameo appearance. Little cameo. Oh, speaking of cameos, I also have to thank uh, my boy, my Tooch awardee, John Rothman. And you know what, John Rothman? Uh, TikTok. It's past your dead time, John Rothman. Go to bed. Go, Go to, to bed, bed, you 75-year-old man. I'm assuming you're 75. Go to bed, yeah. John Rothman. Sure seems that way. Yeah. Go to bed. Uh, I gotta thank um, just like <laughs> career regrets. <laughs> you know, I that 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 seemed struck me as a theme. I got and um, I gotta, you know, Patrick. I mean, I I know this might sound controversial. I gotta thank standard definition screen uh, streaming movies. <laughs> Just in general, I gotta yeah. thank them. I, I gotta give a big, big shout out, and we didn't even mention it on the show, but I've been thinking about it. It's the helicopter shots set to U2's "City of Blinding Lights" from Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> the, I, I like, I like the song. I, I thought, I love the involvement of U2. I wish, oh, there, I wish Bono had been in the film. I gotta give a shout out to Deep Cut here, Little Flaps. Oh, little flaps. little flaps! Oh my god! From our Bridges of Madison County episode, <laughs> uh, and um, you know, I got to thank you, Patrick. Thank you for being a great co-host. Thank you for our, our entire team. We got a team. I'm gonna call it a team. Yeah, we're a squad. Thank you. you. We, we're a squad. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you to the listeners for once again for joining us. We're we are on the damn home stretch here. We can't wait to see you next week to decide the final four. Thank you. This has been the Academy Academy. I'm now going to read another Soren Kierkegaard quote. Just kidding. Bye.
checking out this heartbreak hotel I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more no more five 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 